Hello, hello. Welcome to the Eddie Conversation Podcast. My name is Eddie V. Hill, and I am your host. Uh, I am a filmmaker living out in Los Angeles, California, and joining me today is Sabrina Lasag. Sabrina Lasag. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Hi. Yes. Thank you for having me. For sure. All right. So, Sabrina, you are a director. Is there anything you would like to tack on to that as a... As, as who you are for, for the people at home? Yes. Uh, director, producer, actor, writer, <laughs> dancer. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So I just want to jump into, okay, a little, a little bit of backstory on us really quick before we jump into our main topic of the day. Um... I, okay, it's going to be about me for a second here. I directed a movie recently, a very small, very quick, very small schedule, short schedule, seven-day feature. I don't recommend uh, producing movies like that, but I was hired to direct this movie, and I asked to have shadows for this experience because it's going to be a crazy, it's going to be a crazy, a crazy show, so I thought it, it throwing out to uh the world i'm like hey if anybody wants to come shadow this experience come shadow come shadow me on this on this project come and check it out it, it could be there's could be lots to see and lots to learn who knows what's going to happen here uh and you were one of the people that reached out and uh, luckily we were able to schedule a day where you came out and hung out and shadowed so we had that experience. Yeah. Prior to that, we were only connected via social media, Instagram. So yeah. you you were there. So we did that. <laughs> what is what do you what, what what's your what's how does your perspective on all that? How did that go? Well, first I didn't I almost didn't get the shadow opportunity, <laughs> and I remember being because you had. You were full and you were, I was like, please consider me for future opportunities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, you were like, somebody actually had to cancel. And I was like, thank God. So then going out there and getting to shadow, I think first it was an ice rink. So it was freezing. And I didn't even, I don't know why I didn't think. California had ice rinks I've not seen one since I've been here so um then getting to shadow that day I was like super nervous and I was worried it was gonna be a bad experience (laughs) because I was like I don't know what I'm walking into but yeah and we did the phone call beforehand and that made me more nervous because (laughs) I was like he seems really on top of stuff so I don't want to, like, mess anything up if you ask me a question. So, yeah. You thought... <laughs> okay, great. Yes, we were... I forgot. Yeah, that day was at an ice rink. Mm-hmm. Or like half the day was at the ice rink. Yeah. Freezing cold. And I didn't know about ice rinks either really much. Um, But that's cool that I sounded like I had myself. I mean, I did. I did. <laughs> but... 
it's interesting that I don't know how I do know. Okay. What makes a good shadow is a question, but, um, you, it's just funny that I don't know really how one can mess up a shadow experience. Cause like there's, there's nothing about the project that's really on your shoulders, but I was just worried. <laughs> I was like, I don't want him to be like, what does this mean or something? You know, some mentors, they ask you the questions on set. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, what is this called? Uh, it's a stinger. This is a hot brick. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, well, you're not there to, you're not there to learn about how to be a PA or whatever. Like you're, we were talking directing stuff. So that mm-hmm. no, was great. Yeah, yeah. It all worked new. It was a very good experience. It ended up being, and I think, (laughs) you know, it was perfectly hands-on where I was able to ask questions and not feel like I was interrupting shooting or anything, and you gave full time to answering me, so that was really great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, I tried, like, probably having the, having, like, you and the other shadows was the best part of the experience for me. Really? Kind of. Well, because it was just such a crazy, crazy show that having the opportunity to, like, somehow having the additional free time to just chat directing was kind of, like, the coolest part of the thing and having somebody to bounce my ideas off of and include in. Because I remember on our day, there was a, we were trying to find even just like a place to shoot one of the scenes where like, yeah. we have this parking lot. Let's just walk around for like an hour and then eventually just settle on a spot over here and try to make it work. But uh, let's jump into the main topic of the day. <laughs> uh there is a uh, okay. I want to give some pre-context on it. I'll have you uh, elaborate, of course. But so TikTok, you had a video kind of go. I'll call. It, I don't know. Is it still called viral these days? Yeah. It went viral. I think last count that I saw on your specific video was around like twelve million or so. And then you had a follow-up video. Regardless, a lot of people have seen it. There's a lot of reaction to it, and there's kind of some cool stuff there. So what is this? And, uh, yeah, how did, how, yep. (laughs) Okay, for background context, I was hired by a brand that is for a feminine product, I would say. And our contract was already locked in for me to direct and produce a commercial for them, as well as write a commercial. So kind of when I produce music videos and commercials, I always include writing that in and come up with the treatment for it but I always copyright my treatments before pitching to anyone else and register it so it's not the actual idea I go like step by step of what's going to happen and include dialogue within that because you can't copyright an idea so that's important (laughs) Um, copy so I was hired by this brand to create this commercial and they use another company for marketing and sales. And so they wanted me to essentially explain who the audience I was trying to reach with my commercial is to their sales team and for their sales team to basically give me the numbers of who interacts with their products the most, what the demographic is, all that information to try and see if the ideas I was bringing to the table meshed and on the call 
as soon as I started presenting, on the call, first off, was the brand themselves, like the heads um, and the people who hired me, as well as this company. And So it's kind of like client and agency, right? Is that yes. the term? Yeah. And how many, this is a Zoom call? Yeah. How many people were there on the There are about call? probably 10 other people. Okay. Yeah. And there was only one other woman who is from the brand on this call. So mm. that was something <laughs> important. Um, immediately in me starting my presentation, I was cut off. I didn't even get the first sentence out. <laughs> I just remember being like, okay. So let me establish. I was like, um, please hold all questions until the end. I'll be able to answer them. I'd like to get my thoughts out and then we can see what you didn't like and what you did like and then we can go back through everything and then I just remember that I started the presentation every single slide there was something being said and at first I was very okay with it because I was like clearly it must be you know something in my presentation that Maybe he doesn't want to forget later what he mm -hmm. had an issue with. So that's not a problem. And I was taking it as constructive criticism. So I was like, okay, maybe this is an area, you know, it's he's worked with the brand I was thinking. He ended up being new. So, but I thought, you know, he knows this brand. He's, that's his job. So he's probably telling me this isn't going to align with the people who buy our brand whatsoever. This is aligning with who you would think buys our product, but that's not actually who does. So I was like, okay, let me take this into consideration. And I began to ask questions back about what he was asking me. And I remember it just immediately started turning into him shutting my ideas down, but then taking them and repeating them in his own way how does that i've never i i'm i haven't experienced for i guess maybe i'm lucky i don't know in terms of just even witnessing it myself mm -hmm. or maybe i have and i'm just how does that that's something everybody's aware that's happening right or is it yeah. I'm trying to imagine me taking your idea. Like I'm almost thinking back to when you were shadowing and I was asking for like, hey, let's let's talk about this. Any thoughts here? And it's like, all right, let's go present that. And then I'd present it because I was a director and then whatever. But uh, I'm almost like, but I'm like, I'm not stealing your ideas. Um, no, but I'm thinking about like if I was trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into this man's perspective a little bit <laughs> and be like, how do I listen to you and then regurgitate hey guys so anyway what i think is a great idea is what if women is like wait that's <laughs> kind of weird yeah okay. definitely and i think it was more so there were so many pieces that came to life later that made things start to make sense um he himself is a director and so for him, he was like, this is my chance. I'm on the marketing team. And it became slowly, let me pitch myself in this moment. And the other woman on the call was like, this isn't the time for that. 
And that's when she first asked and spoke up, asking him to please hold all questions till the end. We can have a separate meeting if you want to talk about a future with our brand and directing something, which I thought was even nice to even offer that. Yeah. And it just continued over and over again. And then it got into a few interesting remarks and to say the least Mm. and things were being said in a very negative connotation i would say and i was looking at the faces of the people on the call and all the men seemed to agree with me that it was not the time or place because this is the uh the the you women quotes yes kind of reference in yeah uh, yeah there was shock and so i remember at first i had started recording when he started repeating my idea which i put on my close friends and it was completely stuttering the idea of the character arc that i had just explained of the lead actor we would follow in this commercial Mm. and then he just started repeating it back and i remember it was so choppy and my friends found it hysterical they're like because i wrote not me sitting in this meeting trying my best to stay composed while a man literally (laughs) repeats back to me my own idea and my friends were like this is not actually happening right now and then my guy friends were like this is so something i do (laughs) and i was like i'm glad you're aware that you do it oh (laughs) yeah (laughs) so then i just left it at that and a few minutes had gone by and things kept slowly started escalating and i was like can i get my thoughts out and then it became after the woman spoke up a second time and asked him to please the other thing is i think you can mute people on zoom but the brand does not know how to use zoom so like as a moderator yeah they didn't mute him but they just kept asking And so she spoke up the second time, and after that second time, that's when he started to kind of slip into the territory of other sentences that led to the problem with you women. And I was kind of in shock, and I was like, I'm not... I'm not done speaking, and I'm tired of asking you, and you're also shutting down my ideas, not in a criticism perspective you know it's not a critical perspective it's more you're just now talking to talk and I was just fed up because I've been in this situation so many times and I spent the past year kind of finding my voice as a director and producer and being able to get larger opportunities and meetings with people but prior to that Even now, still, I'm not too sure sometimes how to navigate those spaces when somebody disrespects me or calls me things. I mean, I didn't make a TikTok about it, but I was on another set that's my own set earlier this year, and somebody spat on me. And yeah, that's... When you say spat... Yes. (laughs) Yes. You mean like saliva? Yes. And it was a woman, which is why I make it important to say in my TikTok comments, I don't think this is a an exclusive issue. 
to men in the industry or any industry. I think there are problems all around, but well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's sidebar to the spit really quick. How does that happen? So <laughs> on the set. Um, basically, I had worked with an awful DP who was terrible, and that was a woman. And they brought someone on set who was very disrespectful. And I had to go pick up files from this person. And the person they had brought to set got very heated because I said their behavior was unprofessional. And it led to the, the friend of the cinematographer yeah. <laughs> was offended yeah. by your offense yeah. to the performance. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so, How so. dare you insult my friend? <laughs> so That's interesting. It was very interesting. And <laughs> yeah. But um, on the Zoom call, I was just kind of at a place where I was like, I need to start documenting these moments and seeing where the sentence was going. I had already begun speaking. So I just like took out my phone, which is my why my face isn't in it too. I think people thought like, oh, she's trying to hide. But that wasn't the case whatsoever. It was, I was trying to make eye contact and I also didn't want to record them in the Zoom. So I just took out my phone as fast as possible and hit record and I thought it was getting at least, like, from this perspective, but it wasn't because <laughs> I was out of frame. But um, I just started speaking, and I thought, you know, seeing how he spoke over the rest of the call, maybe he would continue, and at least I'd have that mm -hmm. on record. And then he didn't because <laughs> he was so shocked. And I found myself saying, you know, please keep yourself on mute. Which he was like, well, and continued. And I was like, no, no, no. And then that's when I said, well, I respect your ability to talk on and on. <laughs> My ears have a limit. And yeah, so I wind up recording for a bit. Everybody seemed in shock. I mean, some of the men started laughing. And <laughs> you could see them laughing on the call so that was kind of interesting um i then put the video on my close friends because my friends were like what is happening on this meeting swiping up to the other video of him explaining and then i posted that part and originally i wrote isa would be proud <laughs> and isa ray is someone i look up to and that's why there's like a little bit of black text under the white text i think people too they also were like what's that in the video that's what that is i have the original video on my close friends because everyone knows i love isa ray and i love how she holds her ground in spaces and getting the opportunity to see her work earlier this year on insecure was one of the highlights of my life so mm -hmm. I see how she presents herself and carries herself and she does not put up with people disrespecting her and I think people think oh you have to wait till you're at that level to carry yourself that way sure. and I think you should always carry yourself that way and not allow people to disrespect you especially when the sentence starts with the problem with you women so, yeah. The problem with you women, <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
Wow. Okay. Um. <clears throat> okay. So. I like uh, your um, approach. You describe, like, in the beginning of the call when you're just getting your first sentence out or whatever, like, every, every slide, something, some opinion is coming out. And I like your initial instinct for sure. I think it's, it's still a safe instinct to go with. And the, uh, I would describe the tactic as um, you were giving the benefit of the doubt early on which I think is probably a safe decision, probably more likely in those scenarios. I mean, assuming the more professional a person is, the less likely that is to happen in the first place. But uh, I definitely get the instinct of like, well, they work for the company. Sure, they, they is probably, like you, you include in the BuzzFeed article that you were a part of that, you know, it's it, <clears throat> constructive criticism potentially. Let me, let me hear them out. This is good. And then at a certain point, it, becomes obvious that's not the case and the 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 benefit has the benefit privileges have been lost and uh yeah very okay cool i dig that <laughs> um i like to uh promote giving benefit of the doubt and just in life in general mm -hmm. to people yes <laughs> yeah uh <clears throat> okay so there's a couple things to dig into in there that i think we can talk about um like you said, that this is not a thing that is uncommon in your experience. And the thing that we're particularly talking about is, is it, is it this, how do we, how do we define what is happening here? Is it like, is it uh, just the over speaking aspect or is it the disregard okay what like when you say it's not uh i don't know how do, okay can you help me out here <laughs> um okay i think it's this was a matter of sexism for sure especially with you women yeah yes mm -hmm. and the prior comments to clarify which i didn't get into because I don't want to make it too clear what brand it is, you know. And so, but the prior comments had to do with my ability to do jo the job, which is why me saying I respect your ability to talk on and on was not seen as problematic in the eyes of anyone else on the call because it was kind of, okay, she's earned the ability to say that after all the crap you just said. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think it's just the speaking over because even in a sense, like I can understand if he was originally speaking over, like I said in the beginning, if your job is to tell someone who's coming in who doesn't work for a brand, these are the numbers, these are the people, that's not going to work right off the bat. I know that's not going to work. I'm fine with that. I would have been like, I had multiple ideas. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're um, going to save you some time. Yeah. yeah that if, if you're like, our demographic is African-American women and you're catering to white women in this commercial, that our product's not going to sell. Then I'd be like, okay, let's scrap that idea. Or how can we change this to fit that? You know, but 
I think the problem is when the over the re-explaining and my own idea of what I had already offered <laughs> and right. everything that I'm already saying and passing that off as your own and using it as a time to degrade an entire gender is the problem. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a respect issue. Yes. And, uh, yes. Because, I mean, I guess I was trying to connect the dots between the spit example and this man example. Yes. Um, and I'm also imagining his tactic again with seeing the seeing the diversity on the screen or the lack of diversity on the screen and being like this joke is going to hit because there's more men here and they're going to side with me and uh it's like am i right guys i should be the one directing this right let's get let's get the women off this call but um okay so it's a respect issue because I know one thing you've you you I've heard you or seen you bring up before is because um, you mentioned this one sexism. Uh, there's also ageism. Yes. You want to talk about that? That was my next point. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I think well, if you're tying in the woman who spat on me, I think it's definitely ageism. I think for me, I kind of got thrown into film world at 17 going to college at 17 years old and I went to college for acting but I was the youngest in all my classes and my professors were great but they were also like the reality of the situation is people are not going to be jumping to take a meeting with you if you're planning on opening a production company because I knew I wanted to have a production company from the time I was 16 years old. And so for me, 2020 was always when I said I was going to open it, not knowing we were going to have a pandemic. Sure. <laughs> and um, so when I moved to the LA campus, um, that's where most of my film mentors came from. And they were pretty well established in the industry, a lot of them. And I think one of my mentors is Mert Rich, who his biggest surprise was how young I was. And he often, he's very aware of how the industry is for other people. So I think that was off the bat one of the best. Em empathy? Yeah. <laughs> so I think. Yeah, he had empathy, which stood out, which yeah, is interesting. I it was very interesting. <laughs> and he was like, this is what's going to happen if you are in these spaces because you're young, you're a woman, and, you know, you're black. <laughs> He's like, mm -hmm. you've kind of got three things going against you, but the main two are always going to be being young and being a woman. And he was like, but young is going to be your biggest factor. And Kane DeVore was another mentor of mine, and I would work with Kane on scripts, and I would get opportunities to kind of present these to other people and... Out of different mentorships and different professors, I got different opportunities to shadow other directors and from there find other mentors. And most of them were men and they were all great. And they were all like, 
the reality of the situation is this is how I got in the industry. That may not be how you get in the industry, especially because I wasn't doing this at 19 years old. And then launching my production company, I remember everyone's thing being, how are you going to find work right off the bat? And what's that dynamic going to be? Because everyone I was hiring was older than me. And so I kind of split it into two sections. I have the business side of my company, which has my legal team, my PR and like social media people. And they're all grown adults. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. dealing with them and getting them to take me seriously was a challenge at first. But I was like, going into it, I knew what I needed to know. So for legal, I was like, I have an understanding of these contracts. I understand this is what I want to do. This is how we're going to hire people. This is how this is going to operate when we're going into things. And I had studied a little bit just online and reading a few books on entertainment law, how that should work. So I knew a little bit rather than someone telling me nonsense or maybe, you know, tricking me out of my money. So that kind of gained their respect. And then for my PR person and hiring him, I remember there being a whole conversation of this is what my brand is. You're either with it or you're not. (laughs) So I can find another PR person. And he was like, okay. (laughs) So that kind of gained respect. But they still looked at me as she's young, you know. And then in hiring crew members and being on set, I wanted to work with as many people as close to my age as possible, but it's a little harder because most people who are my age were in film school. So the USC kids are working on USC films. They're not looking to go get hired to a production company at the moment. It's like something they're like, I'll revisit when I graduate. So... Finding the people who didn't go to film school, the only person who was my age was my DP, and then finding... Not the, not the same DP. No. Yeah, okay. This is like my... <laughs> that DP I only used on that one project because I was trying to branch out to in who I work with and get experience working with other people because I think you shouldn't just limit yourself, but I love working with my current DP, and he's a guy, and people are always like what? (laughs) How does that work when you preach being a woman in film? And I'm Um, like, I don't think that's what that means. (laughs) And I think that's part of the issue is people confusing that and also saying my production company is focused on diversity and inclusion. My DP is a white man and people are like, how does that work? And I'm like, my idea of diversity is not all of one race. It's having everyone represented and it's called diversity yeah so every single group is represented not just one of each race or ethnicity i think multiple people existing in the same spaces and being able to collaborate and speak up on certain subjects is super important like for me i think it's important to have native american people at my production company in our writer's room that we have that we bounce ideas off of because I wrote characters that were Native American, but I'm not Native American whatsoever. So that was important for me to kind of let them develop the character themselves and the backgrounds of the characters 
And then from there, I dealt with dialogue and then bouncing back. Is that realistic? Is that okay? What are your thoughts on that? I think that's super important. So yeah, that's I like it. why. Um, but yeah, age-wise, I would say the biggest issue was just hiring people who respected me. And in the beginning of my company, I was hiring people who were anywhere between 28 to like 45. Mm-hmm. And there was no respect whatsoever. <laughs> so you're hiring people. Do you have examples of what types of things you were trying to produce? And then the yes. context of uh, how the lack of respect shines through that? Yes. So I did a short film and that went horribly wrong <laughs> because it was my first short into my production company and that went terribly wrong because the crew just did not you were directing to me. too yes okay. and i produced it as well so i hired the crew and some of them had a clear understanding of what i was going for and they were totally with it and others it just turned into let me give my input on this let me offer my input on this and different issues like that And it was, well, you're not experienced. Once you get to a certain level, you'll understand why we're saying this. Once you, you know, talk to me in 10 years, when you've been doing this for 10 years, you'll understand why this is better than what you came up with. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So I just allowed it to happen for the longest time. I would just be like, okay, they... Yeah, kind of steamrolled over kind of thing. Yeah, I'm sure they know what they're talking about. And funny enough, a similar issue to what happened with this brand happened, but with ageism on the phone, I had gotten invited to direct a commercial for, it was less of a commercial and more of content creation type thing, but they wanted it on a commercial scale, I would say, but it was for YouTube ads and um, Hulu ads and TikTok ads. And... (laughs) I was on the phone with someone from the company and he said I was explaining kind of what we would be able to do, what's entailed in our rate and everything. And he instantly was like, I don't want to hear any of this. I don't want to speak to an assistant, put whoever's in charge on the phone. And I was like, um, I just didn't know how to be like, uh, I'm in charge. <laughs> so I was like, um, well, I am the person. And at the time, I didn't really know. I had such imposter syndrome that I was like, I don't know what to say I am. Do I say I'm the owner of the company? Do I say I'm the director? Do I say I'm a producer? I'm like, I haven't done enough at this time to call myself that. So I was just like, uh, well, I st- started the production company and I sounded so unsure of myself that he was like okay bye and then later the company did apologize because I had tweeted about it without saying the company name and I made a post um about it and I was saying how it's 
I had posted on TikTok as well, actually. And I used this sound where the girl is like, hello, do you know who the F you're talking to? And I was like, me being the director. And then they actually ended up sending me a fruit basket and apologizing. But I didn't, I chose not to work with them because I was just like, I don't know where I stand at this point. And me trying to figure out, do I even deserve that rate? Because I was so unsure in myself mm-hmm. of what I'm capable of. I was like, okay, now I don't even know. Am I supposed to be asking that much? And then that caused issues going into it because later I would just charge people so little or offer to do things for free for so much of early last year because I was like oh I need to be building my portfolio which should have been experience yeah yeah. that should have been probably two projects max but I was like 13 projects in (laughs) I was like okay yeah i can do that for free i just need to build my portfolio okay yeah yeah yeah. so and then it fled into this early this year and i remember just someone pulling me aside and being like you're letting people walk all over you because you're young and you think you're inexperienced because you're young but that's not how film works you get better the more projects you do and you kind of learn what works and what doesn't, and your vision changes. And I remember a lot of my mentors being like, in the past two years since we saw what you were making, your storytelling has grown a lot more because I was making really bad short films. Yeah, so that's, that's how it goes. Yeah, so they were like, it's gotten a lot better. I wouldn't be doing this for free if anyone's trying to hire you for anything. So then from there, I started kind of reading more books on holding my ground and I read the book uh, Backwards and In Heels and a bunch of other people's stories, um, Gabrielle Union and Issa Rae and all these different women and I was like, how do they, you know, do it and how do they hold their ground in these meetings and I slowly started to kind of present myself to look older, which worked because many people didn't realize I was 20 and even on TikTok this whole past year I think the number one thing people are like you're 20 I would not have guessed they're like I would have thought 25 26 and piece of advice that somebody gave me earlier this year um, was Kimberly Douglas and she said pull your hair back in meetings and she was like and wear like a blouse because then you look older but also people aren't focused on a million other things they're just focused on you talking and what you're actually saying and I started to notice a change in how I was being treated in doing that and I think that's kind of how I've been navigating dealing with ageism but it definitely obviously still happens yes okay there's a lot there that's great i it's a okay um yeah i think people tend to assume ages like if 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 you if you never tell anybody your age, people have a tendency to assume towards their age range, which is like 
I'm early 30s. So if I'm meeting somebody, I'm like, oh, they're probably late 20s or, you know, mid 30s. Like they're probably plus or minus five years away from me. Because that's kind of what tends to normally happen is like, well, and then you find out, oh, this person's actually really young or this person's older. And it, it's like, whatever, it doesn't, doesn't really matter because, well, it's my perspective. But, um, <laughs> but I can definitely see that if you do not say it, People are just like, oh, yeah, she's probably, you know, she's here in the meeting with us. She's probably 25, 26 at least because she looks on the younger side, whatever people are assuming. Um, so I get how that could how that could work. Um, it is interesting, the additional hoops that are placed that you have to hop through to um, increase the odds of being taken seriously. Definitely. Um but I do. I definitely know. Okay, yeah. Uh, there's a couple things I want to bring up. I'm trying to make some <laughs> notes as we were, as you were, as you were talking. So, um, you were mentioning that on set in some of those early interactions, where you were directing and other crew members around you were letting you know that hey, um, this idea that you have, let's not do that because. That's a that's a that's an idea or a decision that somebody without experience would make. So let's do this instead, because and and you'll understand later. Like just you'll get it later. <laughs> you'll understand. For now, it doesn't matter if you understand or not. Just trust us. I I don't like that approach. Because okay, <clears throat> let me. I script supervise a lot. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like my bread and butter. Since moving to LA, it's what's it's what's kept me here, um, uh, and I, I, I blah, blah, blah. and I've also directed uh, plenty of things too. Like I like I produced you know like over a hundred projects before moving to LA, and then I've directed three features, and then I directed three features two this year, one a couple years ago, right? But I script supervise still too, so. When I script supervise and I'm working in non-union indie level, often I get paired with directors with less directing experience than me or with never, like no directing experience happens quite frequently too. Um, And then, so I take it upon myself to like, I I don't know. I like the fact that I'm like a filmmaker, script supervisor, supporter of a director. Like I like supporting directors with, Understanding what they're going through is helpful for me to do my job and understand the craziness that goes on as a director. As you know, like stuff is happening. Decisions have to be made really quickly. You're not always thinking about the, um, what's the word? Not like, uh, technical aspects of being a director. Like as a script supervisor, I'm watching for the eye lines and watching the dialogue of the actors and watching their matching action, making sure it's going to cut. So that way you as the director can focus on solely performance and emotion and getting your vision across. But I do know there are many occasion in which um, I can tell a director is getting flustered or they're kind of losing a little bit. Like they're, they're on the verge of like a spiral of like losing faith in their se- in themselves and like decisions. They're not, there's a lot of uncertainty in where they're at. Um, so instead of making a decision for that director, I think it's important to offer support in the way of, um, kind of in a similar, not, it's 
let's say let's say in the interaction that you that you described uh or i wish they would have said and maybe they did i don't know maybe you've heard this too where it's like hey um sabrina so this is like i don't know if it'd be coming from the dp or the ad or the script supervisor but it'd be like hey if, if so you mentioned the idea was this and you kind of wanted to cut like this or you you kind of want this to happen um i think based on based on these based on my experience and kind of how I imagine if we do it like this for this reason and this reason and this reason, I think this might be something to consider, but we can still do it your way. But just so you know, like this is another option on the table and then giving it to the director to be like, all right, I see what you're saying ideally, or it's like, Oh, I get what you're saying, but I've actually, I've thought about it more than you've thought about it. And I, I see how it's going to cut. Like I like presenting it more that way. I wish more people did that. Um, does that happen too? <laughs> I mean, yes. I also, that kind of reminds me of shadowing you. I think that was something that I learned in seeing you presenting to the writer who was on set ideas. And if there were any conflicting ideas being bounced around, the way you presented it was very much like that and being like, I think it should be this way because X, Y, Z and it would cause this and look like this and based on the script because I think only directors really think like that though. So I think that's very much a director's mind where you have the reasoning in your head behind every decision you make and I think seeing that and how you operated was very eye-opening to me and that was something that I learned that was helpful because... I don't always know how to explain mm -hmm. the th thoughts in my head. And sometimes I'm like, just, just go with it, <laughs> just go with it. Right. But like, that was good to see, okay, I should find the reason and explain. And I should always have a reason behind why I'm sticking with the decision because otherwise then it just kind of looks like oh he just went with that yeah so i think that's a little harder though for some crew members if they're not on the directing side because they kind of just tell you this <laughs> sure i yeah i guess it, it, it i mean that's the tricky part of being a, about being a director too is you have to understand who you're talking to yeah it's like if you're talking to the dp it's got to be in dp language if you're talking to the producer it's this language. If it's the writer, they're curious about, you know, making sure that the writing isn't being compromised. Whatever. Like, uh, if it's the gaffer, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully the DP can handle that for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine a scenario like that where a grip or a gaffer or an AC or makeup. Well, I, I mean, I, again, ideally, you have people on set that you trust. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to help you and they're also trying to communicate their reasoning and everybody struggles, especially if they're not a director. It's the director's job to understand why <laughs> why decisions are being made and that's how you build a trust with your crew. Yeah. And when you like deal with commercial people too, like you have to I know commercials are, are intense in the prep. Like you have to frame every single shot this is exactly what i'm shooting this is exactly why we're framing it this way this is exactly how we're going to light it and because um, they like to know and uh, the trust is built 
based on the confidence in which you say the things you're saying, which is pretty much the job, I guess. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. But because I... I guess it's a huge pet peeve of mine just growing up in general with like the either teachers or parents saying that because I said so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm such a stubborn person that I'm like, no. I have reasoning here. Just just explain to me, like, just say that you love me and that you just, this is important to you. And then like, okay, great. Because then I know that there's really no real logic behind it. It's just, this is, it will just, this will just make it easier and happier for you. Okay, great. Okay, yeah. mom, I'll do it. It's fine. Just tell me that because I said so. Ugh, I hate it. Definitely. And I think that brings up a great point about having relationship a trusting relationship with your crew. And I think that's for me why in the beginning of after that first short film that I started, which was my first project that I did when I launched my production company last year, I didn't hire anyone to the company itself. I did work for hires because right. I was like, then I can work with and see how these people are that I bring on. And if I like working with them, I bring them on for the next project. And then from there, and so my current DP, I didn't hire him till this August, and I found him like last June, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And we've done so many projects, and people are like, "He's not like actually hired to your company." <laughs> and I was like, "No," but it wasn't. I fully trust him. I just wanted to make sure, you know, I've explored all my options, and this is who I want to work with. And I think he does a great job of what you're saying of giving reason behind everything and I've kind of after that first initial set something that dealing with people telling me you'll understand in 10 years it made me shy away from directing shots I only really direct actor performances mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until I would say a little bit with my most recent short film but that was only because my DP was like, you've got this, it's it's your film, you know? If you want to direct the shots, direct the shots. But I fully always collaborate and listen to my DP because I know he's very strong in that area and understanding what looks more powerful when dealing with shots and stuff like that. But that completely made me shy away because I was like, I'm inexperienced apparently, so mm. I'm not going to know how this is going to go until a few more years or maybe my maybe never i'm just kidding, six, just kidding yeah just kidding. like i don't know i'm like maybe my 70th project or something i'll be like oh now i know how to direct shots sure so for me that was being able to find someone who i can collaborate with in that sense and that's why i give so much credit to my dp and people are like i don't know why you're giving so much credit to your dp and i'm like my dp fully storyboards and does like shot list with me and mm -hmm. we go through the whole process of pre-production together and then on set if there's something where I'm like I want it to look this way and he will very exactly what you said respectfully and you know with logic behind it say there's also this option if you want to try that this exists do you want to see both ways and i think that's something that i found works for me because sometimes maybe i'm set on one thing and then because if someone explains it to me 
it's the same way me explaining as a director an idea I have in my head. The other person can't necessarily see what I'm yeah. seeing. Yeah. So if they just explain it, I'm kind of like, I'm like, not like, Let me see seeing. it. Yeah. 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 Show it to me. Yeah. Okay. And so he goes and like, will change and show what he's talking about. He's like, whichever one you like better. And sometimes I'm like, I love what you just did better than what I originally had. So let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I think it sounds like the process you go through with your DP is the process is the process that you should be going through with your DP. So I think they're getting as much credit as they deserve. Because it's hard. To, I mean, that's the ideal situation is sometimes we don't have pre-production time to include everybody we want mm -hmm. in all the conversations. But um, yeah, the more pre-production conversations you could have the better and ideally if it's a collaborative experience through the entire shot list of a of a, a you know it sounds exactly like the thing you want to be doing so it's weird that people are confused <laughs> that uh the credit is being given um <clears throat> yeah because i i mean i i don't know if yeah i I feel like that's the same kind of relationship I have with Max as well with mm -hmm. uh, the way that we work. And sometimes I have a more clear vision of what I expect the shot to look like, but a lot of times it's just like, let me show you the blocking, what ideas do you have, and that back and forth. Yeah. Um, because, again, trusting trusting the team and uh, the track record of they've set up this, these, this many amazing shots that I couldn't even think about on my own, so I'm assuming it's going to happen again. What do you got, buddy? <laughs> Let's make this look pretty. Yeah. And they're like, actually, could you give me some guidance here? <laughs> and you're like, okay, okay, I'll help you. Fine. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you do, it's uh, kind of a random question, but in terms of helping with uh, building confidence on the camera side, have you played with photography and that kind of thing? Do you have, uh, aside from like social media stuff? Um, for cinematography? No, just or? like, just... Or, or cinema. I mean, do you play with cameras at all and go and just get shots with friends? Not shot, you know, not, not shot. Do you? you <laughs> I'm know. 20, so. <laughs> oh, that's right. <clears throat> you can't. Yeah, I, well, I love using cameras myself. I started with cinematography and that's what got me into film in the first place. And for me, every now and then I go I have cameras myself, oh, yeah. so I go and just kind of, I'll get friends together. I'll shoot real scenes for my actor friends. And I mean, now I've created a real business with my DP, but if I have a friend who's like, can you do me a favor from acting school or something? I'm like, sure. And I love doing that because it kind of gives me more of an understanding of what my DP needs. And for me, I like trying different crew positions a lot of the time because I feel like it's hard for a lot of producers that I meet to communicate and understand what their crew needs from them. And they kind of fall short sometimes on taking care of their crew. And for me to kind of talk to and befriend a lot of crew members in other areas, you know, other crew positions and below the line, especially, and also just kind of shadow them and experience. Let me try sound for a day. Let me try seeing what it's like 
working as a gaffer, which I can't do. I'm right. really bad at it. <laughs> so, tough but understanding what they need and what they go through and having an eye from their perspective really helps smooth communicating with them and knowing what to ask ahead of time, especially in pre-production for budgeting, because I can ask, like, I know for my DPM, like, do you need a light meter? He's like, nobody's ever asked before, but yes, that would be extremely helpful for this project. And I'm like, okay, so let's get that in the budget. Or, you know, what kind of lighting system are you using? And I like to ask questions and I'm sure, I know I've shadowed directors who are like, I have no clue what any of the lighting brands are. I couldn't tell you anything. But for me, I like to play around with like cameras and lighting mm -hmm. and all this equipment because I like to know, you know, where my money's going, but also <laughs> just like to know what each item does. And then that kind of helps me with when I'm creating the aesthetic of a film that I'm working on or something, I can kind of say, have these conversations and not feel left out if my gaffer and my DP are talking and they're like, well, we need this light, and it's like a $3,000 light. And I'm like, what does it do? <laughs> what right. does it help with? So I love, with cameras, I'm like very big on cameras. <laughs> and I love Sony cameras, um, DSLR cameras, and I like playing around with them. And I also like playing around with footage to color grade. That's something that I've okay, spent the past post. few years mm -hmm. working on. I don't really love editing at all, but I love color grading mm. for some reason. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, I guess that, that would be a good opportunity to uh, jump into talking a little bit about um, pre- Jumping into, because you went to New York for acting school. Yes. Prior to that, I know you reference that you, okay, let's talk about the very beginning, beginning of what drew you to film in the first place. You mentioned cinematography, um, but I know you were, you were kind of exploring and playing around with stuff from Vetti Vetti almost when you were a baby. So Yes. <laughs> um, How does that all play? So I started in dance. My parents put me in dance and like print model stuff from the time I was a baby. And so entertainment was kind of always there. And five, six years old, my my dad loves films. My I come from a family that has a strong appreciation for film, thank God. So they're not in, are they industry? At they're all? not in okay. the industry whatsoever, but they love film, but they watch it from the perspective of everyday people. <laughs> so it's very interesting now when I watch a film with them, my takeaway versus their takeaway. But as a kid, my dad just wanted to show me all the classics and everything. E.T. <laughs> was what we were watching. And I remember just being five or six and I was sobbing over E.T. phone home, the whole thing. And I was like, my dad was like, why are you crying? And I was like, I want an E.T. <laughs> my dad's like, he's not real. I'm like, that's not true. And I kept trying to get him to explain. So the best he could do was offer me the behind the scenes mm. of E.T. Mm -hmm. 
which his intention was for me to understand that et wasn't real that was all he was trying to do i wasn't focused on et at that point once i saw that e- how et was made i was like who's that guy who's telling them what to do and my dad was like that's steven spielberg and he is a director and i was like what's that and my dad explained to me and i still didn't get it and he was like they basically tell everyone what to do. And I was like, I want to be the boss. I want to do that. And That's me. Yeah. So my dad was like, okay, and didn't really think much of it. I went to school the following week, and we had um, our school's library, a biography section. And I the name stuck in my head because I, as a kid, liked S names because I'm Sabrina. And I was like, Steven, Steven. And I didn't really think of Spielberg. I couldn't really say it. But I just remember Steven, Steven, E.T. And then I saw this book in the biography section. And my librarian was like, why? Nobody checks out the biographies. What six-year-old is reading a biography? And I was like, I want this book on him he this is the man who did et yeah and she was like yeah <laughs> she's like okay and checked it out and it was like not an autobiography it was just a biography mm-hmm. and it was kind of diving into his journey into film and how he would save money for cameras and things like that and i couldn't really read it too well but i got the bits and pieces that i needed and I understood. Had pictures too. Yeah. And so I was like, I I can understand he worked with cameras. That's how he started. So I was like, I want to do that. And my parents documented everything when we were kids. So my brother and I are close in age, my younger brother and my older brother is much older than me. So they didn't really document him as much. But my younger brother and I were super close. And I was like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take my mom's camera, and I'm going to start using the camera. And so I started putting my brother in front of the screen, and I was, like, explaining, because the book said frames and things like that. So I started trying to understand what is a frame, and then I was like, oh, you're not in frame, because he's not in the shot. And watching videos, and I remember... My dad was like, she's actually interested in this. She's not letting this go. I thought this would be over three weeks in. And the library book was due back, but I kept it for the whole year. And then going into nine years old in my elementary school, they were like, they sent my mom a bill. They were like, she, we still don't have this book that she claims she returned. My mom's like, where is the book, Sabrina? And I was like, no, no, I gave it back. I gave it back, but I didn't. And I kept it secretly and I would read it all the time. And the better... I got it reading the more I wanted to reread it so I could understand the full picture of what he did to get to where he is. And I started using my this little vlog camera and I would like take videos of my dad eating and cooking and things like that. And he's mm-hmm. like, please don't record me while I'm eating. And I'm like, it's for a documentary. And I couldn't say the word. And just documenting everything and i was in everyone's face with this camera and my dad was like oh my gosh and his best friend is a photographer and he does that for a living and he was like you should get her this little canon camera that is like a point and shoot type thing but it 
records videos yeah. and she can then get better sound with it. And from there, I started documenting things too. And I wasn't allowed to have a phone until I was in high school. So oh, this nice. was Very everything. Cool. Yeah. So I just would play with my brother. And instead of taking photos, I was like taking videos of everything. Mm-hmm. And with my friends, I'd take my camera to school and everyone's like, just use a phone or your iPod. And I had the first generation iPod. It didn't even have a camera, I don't think. Right. <laughs> and so from there, I just kind of fell in love with telling stories and capturing people. But I also started, I was also in acting at the exact same time. And I would take different things I'd learn in acting class to give to my brother and make him do on camera or I'd set up the camera on the stack of books and then I'd go do whatever my acting teacher taught me that day in front of the camera Mm -hmm. and I'd vlog myself and I have videos of me like this is my seventh birthday I'm just so glad to be turning seven because blah 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 and I'm like this video is sponsored by Sabrina Lissig (laughs) so said that as a kid at the end of all my videos and then my dad was like you can't sponsor yourself and when I opened a production company I was like I technically sponsor myself now dad Mm -hmm, (laughs) so mm -hmm. yeah and then I think by the time I was 12 13 I was always on YouTube watching these different cinematographers and videographers and vloggers And they would share insight into what they were doing and how to do it and these different cameras. And I learned, that's kind of where my love of cameras comes from. I learned very quickly which ones are the best ones, what are the best lenses, and yeah, you know. (laughs) But for what projects you want to do and things like that. And at the time, I also only really was doing primarily like travel cinematography it's a classic intro form Mm -hmm. docu style yeah easy to edit yeah exactly and throw some music over it yeah and you know and i would kind of color grade in like iMovie sure when did you start doing the editing and stuff like you're recording for you started recording really young but Mm -hmm. like when did you start actually doing stuff with the footage or how did that work probably 11 or 12 i we would go on vacations and i'd like record so okay the travel stuff was the very yeah yeah yeah. and then i'd edit that together and then every presentation oh that that's not true actually because fourth grade or third grade we had to do flat stanley project and everyone did what's that So basically, Flat Stanley is a book, and it's like this little guy who gets mailed around, and you have to make your own Flat Stanley and mail it to someone, and I mailed it to my godmother in Florida, and then she has to like take a photo with it, and then mail it back based on the book Flat Stanley, and you talk about Flat Stanley's adventure for your Flat Stanley, and everyone did like a basic board, like the tri boards that you use in like the science oh, fair yeah, and stuff yeah, yeah. yeah presentational yeah. yeah yeah and i was like i'm not doing that i was like i want to make it a movie and so instead of just mailing it i like did a stop motion movie mm-hmm. and took a million photos of as if he was going by himself to the mailbox oh, wow. and shipping himself. And then I made her take a bunch of photos in Florida. Like she took him around different places 
and as if he was walking with her. And then when she shipped him back, take a bunch of photos. And she was like, only for you, because <laughs> this is too much work. And I'd made it into like a stop motion movie and edited it and put music and color graded with iMovie, just slapping a LUD on it. But, you know, and then I was like, this is my presentation. And my teacher was like, this is, <laughs> I've never seen anyone do this before. Um, is this what you want to do? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And she was like, okay. And then that's when she told my parents they should get me um, a MacBook. And then they were like, okay. They're like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were like, just for that? Isn't there something else she can edit on or another software? And I remember that's when um, my dad got me like another version of an iPad or iPod. And I also had a Kindle and I just downloaded like a few editing apps mm, onto mm -hmm. those and I would edit stuff on there. And it was like the Kindle Fire, so it was able to have apps like that. And I would just edit on those. And then by the time I was 12, I was like constantly filming and editing everything. And then I think once I got to eighth grade, that's when I got my phone. And then I was like, this is a game changer because... I can film nonstop and I can edit right on this. And yeah. everyone was like, I'm on Kick or Snapchat and what are you doing, Sabrina? I'm like, I'm editing. This is my editing app. And I found this app, I think it was called like Cute Cut, and I still kind of use it to this day on my phone. And it's really good. It was five ninety nine. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. And <laughs> shout out to that. Yeah. I mean, it's good for editing and overlaying and you can do all this stuff with it and even color grade in the app. And I was like, okay, this is kind of I'm gonna learn from here. And then watching YouTube videos, I kind of started getting better at understanding composition a little bit and framing and how to actually like play with color in setups and I would watch like those inside the director's mind or like director's cuts of films and all these different talkbacks where they talk about the pre of the film and that kind of started interesting me more because I was like oh they don't just walk onto a set they don't just go, they don't just go on vacation and yeah there's planning yeah appear and say this is the film we're making right i didn't know all that so that kind of opened my eyes and i started understanding a little bit more of what color schemes do in a film and you know how you can use a color palette and how to play with saturation and how to play with lighting and what a key light is and all that kind of stuff. And I just kept learning more and more. And then by the time I was 13, I was like, I want to write a story, like a script. And so I just Googled how to write scripts. And I went to Barnes and Noble and bought books on screenplay writing. And I just looked up the scripts of my favorite movies and I saw the format and the outline and I was like, okay, but I didn't know there was, like, special software for it. Mm -hmm. So I was just doing it in, like, Word and then typing it out and using, like, the typewriter font to do it. And then I just made, like, my first script. And then I was like, I want to now make it. And it was a terrible, terrible short film about 
a woman with Alzheimer's because I remember my grandpa had just gotten diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I made it about this grandma with Alzheimer's because I didn't want to call out my grandpa. Sure. <laughs> and so it was called Noodles on the Floor and it's like still on YouTube, but I put it on private finally. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it you, was really bad. So you cast your, your grandma acted for you or how did you do that? I basically made it like a point of view type film. And just got shots of different things like noodles on the floor and I did voiceover and I called out my friend who's my childhood friend who was like, I want to be a cartoon character voiceover acting. Sure, sure. And so I called her and she had moved away and I was like, how can we do this? So we recorded through Google Plus and... I got her to do the other voice and then I did one of the voices and it was like a phone call between like a caretaker and the daughter of the grandma and I got like some of my grandma's hands I think at one point one of the shots washing something and then it's like she stops and drops whatever she's washing and like the noodles fall and she keeps not eating because she forgets and like she leaves these noodles on the floor and it was like a terrible thing but I, I just had fun with it, you yeah, know, yeah. and I thought it was like some moving piece at the time. <laughs> so oh, yeah. my family was like, this is, oh, yeah. Oh, so you made everybody watch it. Yeah. And then my mom shared it with the people at her job and they were like, oh, this is so cute. Like, oh, nice. she's making little movies. Yeah, yeah. And it's just funny because like some of them are like, it's crazy. We remember when you made that film and we were like oh like she made a little thing <laughs> that's all they thought and they were like they did not think i would go into filmmaking and showing like the clip of my most recent film that was uploaded people were like that's insane this <laughs> she... is real now yeah <laughs> like okay and i'm like i definitely would revisit the subject like the idea was there it was just poorly executed. Sure. I feel that way about my early stuff, too. It's like, if I had to do that now, oh, mm -hmm. my gosh, it would be so good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's a, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear the progression of the parents um, with, like, oh, this is probably just a, a, a phase. Oh, it's three weeks. She's still playing with this. Okay, this is looking serious. And then even years go by now and you're doing stop motion and you're recording nonstop and you're playing with different apps and there's still the confusion of, oh, she actually followed through and uh, is doing some stuff in Los Angeles now. We didn't thought she'd go into, <laughs> I don't know what the expectation was or if there was any, um, uh, not like pushback or like more suggestion of like, are you sure... Because you talk about, I know you've, how, the question is, who do you hear, like if there are people doubting the path, let's say, where does that, where does that noise normally come from? It's, is it, is it friends, family, or have you been lucky enough to have full support in all avenues? It's never family. Well, never immediate family. <laughs> um, my parents, knew, like, once they saw I stuck with it to eight years old, they were like, okay. It's a done deal. This is happening. And each year was 
birthday can i have a camera can i have a microphone can mm-hmm. i have this other kids are like i want a bike i want a barbie i'm like no no no. i want this i want i want the uh, so, Ari alexa mini yeah, <laughs> so they're like okay uh she's got quite my parents didn't understand two camera collections they're like you've got like eight cameras you do you need another one? I'm like, yes, that's, yeah. that's how it works. But um, they do different things, and they didn't understand that. But they have—they never understood the world, but they were super supportive. And I think it's because both of them chose... Both my parents are immigrants, and they chose paths that were... My dad's in the medical field and also does business. And my mom works for the government for NCI and NIH, and is a program analyst and she used to dance and model when she was in the states in new york mm-hmm. but didn't go anywhere my dad loves music and plays a bunch of instruments and both of them speak a lot of languages and my mom is always like i used to dream of being an actor but she never wanted to live vicariously through me so she let me pick it and I think that's why they're super supportive of they don't want me to end up in something that doesn't make me happy. And my dad loves his job, but he's also like he wants to cook and make music and have a restaurant, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they've been super supportive. And I think my siblings are super supportive and always are like she's just always doing something artsy like this is what she does both my brothers they're like okay eye rolls over here yeah they're like you know that's that's what she does like that's just our sister don't mind her just recording you right now and i played sports as a kid and other things and i think school was very important to me and i think that's where people the doubt comes from so i had a lot of teachers like in high school and stuff who I would test out of, like, I graduated high school early, and I would test out of subjects and things like that, or for the county on, like, a bio HSA or something, or the state or the country, and my teachers are like, why don't you go do biology and things like that? It's more stable than, you're not really going to make it as an actor and a filmmaker, like, go do this you're good at this, you can do this. Sure. And I hated biology. <laughs> I just But you were good at it. Yeah, I yeah. hated school, but it was like I hated it so much I was like I need to get out of here as fast as possible and the only way to do that is to be good at it. So mm. it was one of those things and I think also just my peers I kind of grew up doing some industry stuff, so I was still doing a lot of like print stuff as a kid and then even in high school and I would go to New York a lot and I was doing dance and I was doing these dance tours and we would travel to different states and like different places all the time and I would not really miss school but I'd be gone for the weekend and instead of hanging out with my friends at a party I'd be like I can't because I'm going to a dance competition in New York or I have an audition in New York for a Broadway Mm. play. Like, I can't (laughs) do this. I'm memorizing lines. I can't hang out today. Things like that. And people would just be like, do you actually think that's going to work out? (laughs) Or things like that. And I remember for the longest time after middle school, I didn't tell people I wanted to act anymore 
because I would tell my friends I want to be an actor when I grow up and they'd say, yeah, I can see you in a Tyler Perry movie. <laughs> Lovely. And I was like, okay, that's it. And they're like, oh, yeah, you could do those um, school PSA videos. <laughs> yeah, people have a limited uh, understanding of uh, potential uh, or um, what the what's possible as an actor or yeah. a filmmaker or that the whole idea of, of jumping in the first place is to even either even even pave new new paths and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. It's like um yeah. You know. So you 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 mentioned that your mom your parents are they have they're creative people. Mm-hmm. Um music, acting backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. And that your mom even had the dream of being an actor at one point, but that you she let you you made the decision on your own to pursue the acting side. So that was like an early decision that you had made, like in middle school or something. At and five, you made that at five. Okay. We were on a cruise ship, and <laughs> my dad asked for entertainment, and the guy told him there's this musical tonight. My grandma was with us, and she was being super stubborn and. She was like, I have to look good and blah, blah, blah. So we were late. But the guy didn't mention that. My dad said for the whole family, the guy, I was five. My brother was three. And we got there late. It was Chicago, the musical. And we got there during the cell block tango. And um, right at Liz's monologue where she's like, Bernie, he liked to chew gum no, not chew, pop. And then it's like these women in burlesque doing these, talking about murdering their husbands. And I was mesmerized. And my dad was mortified. He was like, let's get out of here. This is not for kids. We're going right now. And my mom could not move me. I was literally like, I want to do that. And then we left and we passed the like playbill type board. And I saw the girl who played Liz and it said she went to Juilliard. And from then on, I was like, what is Juilliard? And my mom's like, it's the top like dance and acting and music school. And I was like, I'm going to go there. That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. That was the dream. It was just Juilliard because I didn't understand there was more to acting at the time. It was just for me. Juilliard, Juilliard, Juilliard all through the years. And then... I started to fall more in love with acting and then I started to understand there's more than just Juilliard. Juilliard is not acting. It's a place that you go. Right. So I stuck with it and I knew I wanted to do it. And I remember my parents sat me down and they said, most actors are not making that much money because they understood a working actor doesn't mean a celebrity. And so they were like, most actors in their beginning stages, sometimes for their whole career, you don't make money. (laughs) And are you ready to do this if you never make a dime? And I was like, mom, if Steven Spielberg called me today and said, I can't pay you, you have one line or one word, I'd go. I'd pay for the ticket and I'd be there and I'd show up and I'd do it. And I'd say that one line, however the heck Steven Spielberg wanted me to say that one line. I was like, if somebody told me they wanted me to play the lead in some play that's off 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 broadway and some back alley 
and I got to play a character, I'd be there. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I liked playing characters so much. And that helped me so much with directing and making that transition because I understood actors a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I was going was to take us there. But yeah. Please, yeah, <laughs> so please go for it. It became like going to acting class became a double, let me kill two birds with one stone for type sure. of thing. Because I would analyze my classmates. And I did this from the time I was in middle school. And I would do plays and musicals in middle school. And I had a teacher... Mr. Tory Shaw, who <laughs> he was amazing because he made me come out of my shell, but he would yell at me nonstop. And everybody was like, why do you not hate Mr. Shaw? And I would cry sometimes, but it wasn't because he was trying to get me to quit acting. It was because he knew I was going to be one of the few students that planned on doing it my whole life. And he was like, you were you were you were a serious one, so a little bit uh, was a little bit tougher on you. Yeah, and so that I don't, I don't was, know I don't know how I feel about yelling, but still, it uh, was in a good way. <laughs> I mean, he would take he would force me to sing. I can't sing. I'm not a singer. We I would take voice lessons with his wife too, and he would force me in the chorus room to sing, and call me out in front of everyone, and I felt so crappy. <laughs> But that's, that's I remember him being like, you have to prepare for these things, especially at the time I was still on Juilliard. So he was like, if Juilliard's the dream, you're going to have to be ready to be thrown into things and come out of your shell. And it was crazy to people because for me, acting was such an escape. And my parents would invite people to my shows and everyone was in such shock because I was the quietest kid around adults. Around my friends, I'm like crazy. But even to this day, I kind of carry myself that way. I'm pretty reserved. and Yes, reserved is a good word. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to that. So yeah. Prefer to watch people and listen than talk so then, much Yeah, when I'm around people. So with my friends who are close to me, I'm crazy. But around all these adults and people, they were like, this girl is so shy. And they'd come to the show, and I was just a completely different person. And they were like, I... Who are you? Yeah, <laughs> what? And that's why he was like, I know she loves it. I know she wants to do this. So for me, I would then analyze everyone in my acting classes, and I would take notes on how he would direct the shows, and I would watch him so closely and how he spoke to the actors and how he gave us notes. Mm -hmm. And I knew for me, I was like... I don't like when he singles me out. So I make sure to not single my actors out because I'm like, that then makes you kind of more uncomfortable and you have to then almost feel, I have to do better now or I kind of feel embarrassed, you know? Yeah. So I kind of took that and realized, okay, maybe it's better to start pulling actors to the side sometimes if I'm not liking their performance. And, you know... Then I started noticing what worked in terms of giving character names. And I would notice, like, for me as an actor, when directors would tell me to do something in the name of my character, it helped me stay in it more mm. and take that note as the character rather than playing And pulling you out of it yeah, as, hey, Sabrina, you. so here's the... It's like, no, no, you just took me out. I was in it. Yeah. I was in it, and now I'm gone. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because I'd feel like I would look was looking at it from out of my own body if 
I was saying Sabrina and I was thinking right. too much about that then. But so then I started using that and kind of playing around with does that work for some of my actors? And if it didn't work, then I drop it. But, you know. Yeah, who likes it which way? Attempting, yeah, yeah and seeing what works with different actors. But I kind of learned so much of the technique technical side of directing performance from being an actor and it was kind of great to kill two birds with one stone even in acting school people are like why didn't you go to film school I went to acting school and it was kind of my film school and we had extra programs in film and so many of my professors were filmmakers and are now my mentors even after I graduated but it was just constantly looking at it from an actor's perspective to learn but also what am I learning as a director in how to speak to actors and what terms work and things like that and I think that is something that my DP he and I talk about all the time he didn't go to film school or to acting school and doesn't like directing performance he likes directing shots and how a scene is going to go but not the actual performance because he was like I don't know how to communicate with actors and we kind of work well in that sense of liking different parts of everything. And something he was asking me is like, where do you kind of learn all these terms to convey to the actors? And I feel that's something that I've kind of gotten better with is from being an actor because I'll be able to say like, take a beat here or things like that or, you know, what are the given circumstances? Let's raise the stakes. And they understand that terminology, mm-hmm. whereas some directors will be like, I don't know how to tell you, or they'll tell them how to feel, and then the actor gets upset, and I've seen that happen, mm. and they're like, you feel this emotion in this moment, or you're angry here, or can you get more upset? They'll say things like that, and I watch right. the actors being like... Can you just be funny on this one? That's Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, like that. Yeah, I mean, that's a. I like the dynamic between the director and the cinematographer in that way. That's kind of the, the way I expect it to go, too, is when an actor is receiving direction, there's an expectation there that when the director's talking, it's performance based. And then if the cinematographer talks to them, it's like a blocking thing or a movement thing, a composition thing. It's like, all right, cool, they can separate in their brain. Okay, I'm talking. Yeah, where it's like, all right, you want me to stand here? Okay, I, I know it's just for camera. It's not a, it's not a performance thing at all, and that helps with the separation. But I um, was going to jump in and say, when? Okay, before I ask the question, I have the. Oh, I relate in the way that I wanted to be an actor first too. I don't know if we talked about that before, but because. Um, because growing growing up, I think that's that's a common thing to see. If anybody's interested in movies, the thing that we watch growing up is the people on the screen. And like you said, we don't we don't understand that. Oh, it took planning to get there, and we just see the final product of Spider Man swinging through the the street. And you're like, oh my gosh, that would be so fun to do. Oh my gosh, yeah. I want to I want to I want I want to be Spider Man. Like, let me just give this a shot. Um. But when did it switch to when did directing come on the radar for you? How did how does how does that play? Um, I lost it. I think that's what surprised people too because I was you lost planning. It? I 
was so into filmmaking and then at 16 I was like I want a production company one day and I kind of wrote out this business plan Mm -hmm. and I put it away and I went to college for acting and in the New York campus of my school everything was so technique driven and it was all for Broadway almost stage yeah stage acting which is different which I hated yeah because once again me being reserved and they make make you go big get you really uncomfortable with, with that yeah and I remember it took away my love of everything because my teachers in the New York campus a I was the youngest B there were th- scenes I couldn't do because I was a minor. C my teacher sat me down at the end of my first semester and they said, "You suck at this class because of this. You suck at this class because of this." And I remember being like, "I don't think this acting thing is for me." And it took me realizing, "Oh wait, this is for stage. And I remember one teacher actually said, one professor, he was like, you need to go to LA because your style of acting is for film. And immediately that reminded me of what I liked about filmmaking and capturing so much that's so visual And even in dialogue and how actors express themselves on camera has always been something interesting to me because I think even the rule of like not blinking and don't blink too much and actors acting with their eyes and things like that was always so interesting to me. And I was instantly like, yeah, I do need to go to L.A. And luckily my school had an L.A. campus. But then going into my second semester... We had a acting for camera class, and I remember... So, did you jump to L.A. for second semester? I jumped for third. Okay. So, in my second semester, we had an acting for camera class one, once a week, one class for an hour and 30 minutes, I think. And my professor for that class had gone to Yale for um, film. And the first day... He made us do an exercise, and I remember instantly he was like, you're a film actor. You're great. And it was the first compliment I had gotten the entire time I was at that school. And I remember I was crying and calling my parents every day, and I was like, I suck at acting, Mm. da-da-da. And my parents were like, hang in there. It's going to be fine. And finally, a teacher said that, and I was like, I don't think I'm meant to do stage, and I don't really love it, and I don't like – I felt so uncomfortable over-exaggerating every yeah, it's gesture. Not, it's not coming naturally. Yeah, it just felt so forced. And compared to the other people, especially most of the kids in my class, well, I say kids, they were older than me, but sure. <laughs> they went to performing arts schools. And for me, I was coming straight out of doing like dance work and commercial type things and having the background in film and interest in that and no interest in like, stage and I remember they did a director's workshop thing and it was for stage and I was like yeah I don't like this this is for me it's different did you so you didn't do any theater acting in high school did you I didn't do it in high school I did it in middle school in high school I was so 
I was miss. I was so worried about my social life that I was like, I can't be a theater kid. And oh, so no. I refused to do theater, but I would take classes in theater in the school. Like you could take a class, a theater class. And I did that all throughout high school secretly. And I told I told my friends, I was like, oh, yeah, I got put into the stupid theater class. And they were like, oh, okay, that sucks, Sabrina. Why don't you transfer out? And I was like, oh, they told me, like, the, all the other wow. classes are full. <laughs> and I remember my theater teacher was like, you love this. You have a great, you have a great understanding of technique. You, you were and, a cool kid. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, oh, because I was like, <laughs> you know, doing, like, lacrosse and, like, dance and wanted to do like palms and stuff like that instead of theater it was like ew theater gross yeah. i mean I, I didn't do theater what'd you do but i didn't do anything <laughs> no i did i did track and i did uh sophomore year i did football um which i hated but i wanted to be cool i'm not i'm not cool though i didn't i couldn't stick the landing on that but uh no i mean theater for me was more of like I saw the people that were in theater and I did not, uh, I did not have the same energy yeah. and I feel, I don't know if that dictated any mm-hmm. of your, yeah, you know, it's just like, those aren't, it's not my, it's not my, I don't, yep. That was my feeling. Yeah. So I didn't do it. But Definitely. Yours was also probably that plus the image thing too. That's yeah. funny about the class though. Yeah. So, <laughs> mm and then I went to the LA campus mm-hmm. and on the LA campus, everything was so different because LA, they were prepping you just to get in the industry, which is very different than to be an actor. And right. I think those are two different mindsets and they teach so differently because New York was so technique, technique, technique. This is how you're going to last working and always give good performance. And then L.A. was like, we don't care about your performance. <laughs> We're just here to teach you how to get an agent. And we got to get you booked. Get in there. Yeah, literally. So they're like, whatever it takes, you know, what makes you marketable? That's what it was. And so in the L.A. campus, they had room for these extra, this thing called the artist lab. And... I remember my friend Tucker was like, Sabrina, you have to do this because I would make those travel videos with my friends in New York and I would post them on Instagram and I had a drone, a DJI drone that I would, I had spent so much money on it and um, I had, from the time I was in high school, pre-Casey Neistat and drones being illegal and the whole thing with New York. Um, In high school, I had a bunch of footage. When I would go to New York, I would fly my drone there. And so I had that footage saved and I would use it in some stuff. And then I started selling it as like stock footage. And then I was like, oh, I can kind of do this. Like I can use my drone. And that's the closest thing to filmmaking that I have Mm -hmm. at the moment. So... I started selling stock footage, basically, of my drone shots. And my friend Tucker was like, you should submit. There's this writer's workshop thing with this guy who had, like, an MFA in writing from Columbia University. And I was like, okay, like, maybe I'll learn something, you know? So I went, and there were, like... 60 people at the interest meeting. I was like, oh, my God, there's no way I'm even... Like, I hadn't... 
I was always writing and I consider myself a writer in the sense of I also study like journalism very heavily and I like writing articles on people I like writing works of fiction for myself and I have like an account on like vocal where you can submit writing for challenges and things like that mm -hmm. and tell stories but I still to this day don't consider myself but a screenplay you, you, writer. You've written, you've written plenty of screenplays though, yeah, no? Yeah, but I don't consider myself <laughs> one. I don't... But you are. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just... I don't have a love for it. Uh -huh. I think that's almost what it is, is I don't love screenplay writing. I'm My end goal, end all be all, is to just direct and produce scripts and come up with the idea and then pass it on to another writer. So you want to be a creative producer involved in, in the yeah. story development, but not necessarily be day in, day out at the computer writing dialogue and action description. No. That makes sense. I feel similar similarly where I've written mostly to get me to the next stage of I want to direct. So let me write something that I want to direct but I mean, I enjoy the process probably more than you do. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, okay. And I think part of that is most of my stories stem from me and my experiences, I mean, which that's... are sometimes traumatic to yeah. sit there and I'm like, I, I should just give oh. this to someone else. So, okay. So, you, just to clarify, you have written screenplays, but you go to this thing, it's like a writing workshop. Yes. So, it becomes a writing workshop and I end up getting in and I remember presenting my idea and everything and he was like oh that's really interesting and I came with two ideas because I was so unsure of myself at the time I was like in case they don't like my other one here's this so he was like don't do that just be confident in your one idea mm -hmm. and so I ended up getting in and only they picked 11 students and then out of the 60 that showed up yeah and so we start the following week and that same week there's this other workshop a film and editing class and i'm like what did i do all my childhood film and edit let me <laughs> submit to this but i was so worried because it was kane devore and my mom used to be a fan of his show with john stamos and i was like okay and i was like he's probably gonna judge me because at the time he had like a film coming out called Coldbrook that was like in theaters and going to Amazon and stuff and I was like this is not good enough for this workshop mm -hmm. all I have is a travel video with some drone shots and I was so nervous and I remember it was a one-on-one -on -one in interview and he even said he was ready to let me into the workshop before even seeing my work because he was like this girl clearly needs to be in this workshop because She's lost her way from filmmaking, and clearly that's what she loves, I would say, he said in his opinion, more than acting. And so he saw the thing, and he was like, this is great, like, da-da-da. But obviously there was room for improvement, and it's a film class, so he was like, I'm going to let you in, but we're going to work on, you know, your ability to work with actors and dialogue and start putting those in front of the camera for you now. And then that's where I kind of learned directing. And in that workshop, we would get these challenges. First, he taught us like 
how to make your phone cinematic and what the standard industry standard for shooting like 24 frames per second things like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then i was like okay like that's stuff that i know i know some of that stuff so now how do i can take that and just take what i've been doing but now i'm putting people in front and that was scary to me because i was like i don't know how to do that i just filmed my friends and my family eating breakfast <laughs> like i don't right, know right. how to give them characters to life or anything at the same time you had been in acting classes and you'd have like you said you're kind of double dipping on acting mm-hmm. class already you just hadn't actually, actually put, done put, it. put a dedicated actor in front of you yeah. yes so that was different and that was scary to me because especially like i had made a bunch of short films with friends acting who weren't actors back home yeah but it was different when you're like here's the story here's a script here are actual actors let's bring it to life now i was like okay so then he started giving us assignments each week and it was like a different challenge and at the same time i'm in the workshop for this screenplay writing and i'm working on a script and i'm learning more than what i had ever learned online or in any screenplay book which was super helpful to me and then i remember that started going hand in hand with this film and editing class. And I started writing more scripts and bringing my acting friends in acting school who weren't in the workshop to be in front of the camera. And I started doing all these assignments, like a film noir and everything. And I remember each week we'd watch other people's stuff and I'd get so intimidated by how far along so many other students were in that workshop. But then... It wound up turning into like a collaborative thing where they almost started mentoring me too Mm -hmm. as students of like, here's how I edit and here's how I got this far. And I remember the first thing everyone was like, you've got to get rid of iMovie. (laughs) You've got to let go of iMovie. And I was like, this is all I know. I don't know Premiere. And I started with um, Final Cut. Final Cut Pro? Yeah. Is that a... I use Premiere. I don't know. Yeah. I, I stuck with that since I jumped in. But I started with that because it was easier, apparently. It was not easy for me. Okay. <laughs> Going from iMovie to that was a different world. And I was like, but I'm still glad I did that before jumping from iMovie to Premiere because that would have been horrifying. So... It would have been just... It would have been the same. Uh, either way, maybe. Who knows? Premiere is... I don't know. I don't know. Premiere is... It's hard. For me, for me for I'll boil it down really quick. For editing, mm-hmm. I see it. I mean, the, the, the tools are the same. You have your cut tool and you slice it. <laughs> and then you move the clip around. I mean, that's kind of yeah. the gist of what editing, like the bulk of it is. Very so it's true. Like as long as you know the cut tool, and then you just you kind of go from there. But I it, guess. Does, it is intimidating with all the different tabs, that's... all the different <laughs> effects, sound effects, transitions. Where do I even put my import? Where's where that where that tab go? I lost it. Like all that kind of stuff happens. It's oh no, yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Okay. The layout was intimidating. I remember too when I first finally got Premiere. I think it was two years ago, and I did. I was paying for it, but I didn't use it. Every time I would open it, I would let out a huge sigh, and I was like, oh. And I was like watching tutorials, and I would get so lost in watching the tutorial, and then I realized. I didn't use it for like two months and then I realized I should probably just give myself a tutorial by playing around with footage and 
playing around with the different what does this do what learn, does that do learn by doing yeah and then that ended up being how i can now use it where i am now but even now i don't say i'm a pro in premiere like i could not be an editor for sure <laughs> but you can get in there if, if needed you understand mm-hmm. the process you can probably communicate with an editor decently yes. so it's there helpful go. there we it's go. good to know and like if needed too for my own films i'm like I can edit my own film. If it, if it, if it, if it, if it's a, if it's a <laughs> difference between the film getting done and not done, like mm-hmm. it's nice to have that power of I can get in there and yeah. finish the job. If uh, desperate, if desperate times, it happens. I've done it, but yeah. Yeah. Great. Yes. Okay. So, so you're in this class. You're getting. You're sharing ideas with other filmmakers. It's a beautiful experience. Yeah, I wound up hiring a lot of them actually to work when I was like, I'm opening that's a production how it, that's company. How it goes. And it was kind of funny because I was the worst in that class, and <laughs> they're like, "This is the girl opening a production company." So I remember at first everyone kind of was like, "You're opening a what?" <laughs> and because they were like, because nobody she's else, not that. No, nobody else had in. Oh, it was because it was you. Yeah, they, okay. it was like, she's not the best in the class. Like I got better by the end of the semester, but they were like, she's it's not. A, at it's that a craft, level. everybody. It's a craft. Yeah. So, I at first I didn't take it seriously, but then in the midst of all these workshops, there was another thing in the artist lab where you could pitch a f- script you already had to get it made and funded by the school. Love. So I had this film, which is my magnum opus, I would say, called Capitulate. And I had been working on it since the time I was 12, but... The script. I never put it down, yeah. And I, each time I got better at screenplay writing or I had a new thought or I was like, I don't like this anymore, I'd go back and edit it. So it was probably... It was like many years in the making. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to pitch this, even though it's a feature film. And I was Ooh. like, I don't think they're looking for a feature, but maybe I can shoot like a proof of concept here and then use that. Mm-hmm. So I remember I submitted it in and you had to fill out this document that was like 20 pages of different questions in depth they wanted answers of like why you need to make this film and you as a filmmaker and all this stuff and my imposter syndrome was so bad I was like I'm not a filmmaker I mean I really wasn't so like sure I was just like I don't have the answers to these things so I just answered from an artistic perspective of I need to do this it's like for me it's like breathing and picking up a camera and although I'm new to putting actors in front I can guarantee I can direct this and bring this to life because the story was so personal to me and I didn't think it was going to go anywhere and I remember so many people submitted and they were like I didn't get I didn't get anything I'm not moving on to an interview or anything and then I got the interview and it was a panel of like I'd say like 12 people and they were all like whose story is this (laughs) I was like mine and then they asked me to talk about it and I remember in talking about it 
I suddenly found the words that I couldn't put on the page in the application. And I think that's why they wanted the interview because they knew there was more than what I was able to write. And they started telling me, you know, this is great. There's work to be done on the script. We're not going to give you the funding for it, but you clearly have something here and you clearly have a strong liking for filmmaking and you seem to have a vague understanding that can develop more. And they were like, we each kind of want to mentor you. And so I started once a week meeting with, sometimes it was twice a week, but depending on his time, meeting with Kane and he would help me kind of understand a little bit deeper script format and also what works and what doesn't work in his experience and just kind of sharing his scripts and his screenwriting process with me. And then I'd meet with like other professors who were like, I was a slush reader at Warner and Sony. So they'd read through the slush pile of scripts and some of them they got made and they had gone to AFI and they were like, here's what works with the ones that end up in the slush pile and here's what didn't work and why they were in the slush pile in the first place. And sharing their ideas. And then I wound up with professors who were like, I have gone to Sundance and here's my experience with that. And I did the writer's lab at such and such place and I did this. And they started sharing their journeys with me. And then from there, it developed my filmmaking even more. And at this time, I'm still not really directing. I was just learning more, you know? And I just absorbed everything because I didn't want to jump into directing something until I was ready to do it on the level that was different from all the bad shorts and stuff I had made before. And so I just absorbed all the information they gave me like a sponge. And I remember I had, I still have it. It's like a giant folder of notes that I would take every time. Mm -hmm. And like just things that people say that stick with me. I think even in shadowing you, like that's in my folder. I have different (laughs) quotes that you said and Things like that and what works and what didn't work and what I saw that I was like, oh, I should try that or things like that. I like to go home and write them down before I forget. And just taking all that in. And then we got into my final semester at AMDA and then COVID happened and we had to finish school online. Oh, no. And then I graduated and I was like, I think I'm ready to do what I want to do on a larger, a little bit of a larger scale than anything I've done before, which would be anything that's over $50. So I was like, okay, how do I do that? And then I remember I was like, oh, I have a little bit of money from some stuff that I've done as a kid. I'm going to put that in. And I said, I wanted, I remembered, I was like, oh, When I was 16, I started that journal of my business plan to have a production company. And I was like, oh, you know, what makes mine different? There are so many production companies and all this stuff. And I started filing for the patent for the trademark and the name and registering and all that stuff and legal jargon. My parents were behind me because they were like, you've been talking about that since you were 16. Mm -hmm. You kind of dropped it and (laughs) then now you're back. So... I guess we're going to help out in any way. And 
I kind of put together my money and then I asked my mentors if they knew any investors who'd be interested and they were like, the question everyone kept asking was like, what makes yours different than the millions of production companies mm-hmm. that there are? And so I kind of had to come up with what kind of stories do I want to tell and everything I had learned. And so I kind of shot this little proof of concept thing to show what my company is all about. And then I showed the type of people I wanted to hire and give opportunities to, and then brought on some investors. And from there, I was back in filmmaking. And then I dove into that project with everything I had learned and all my notes. And it was a short, short project. And I directed that. And that was like my first I would say indie level directing experience. Yeah, it was, that wasn't like it was your big your big. Um, I don't want to say like coming out debut, new new me. Yeah. Kind of project, yeah. Yeah, and so I did that and sent it to festivals because it was personal to me, and you know, it wound up getting some stuff. Cool. And that was <laughs> but yeah, and from there I just have been learning and taking what works for me what doesn't work for me you know take everything with a grain of salt or as you said be open to everything and attached to nothing so yeah great thank you i'm still i was you brought that up before we were recording and i was like wait i said that yeah um it's okay sounds great i love the quote uh thank you for highlighting me again i appreciate it Okay, so yeah, no, I like, that's definitely, I mean, that's uh, that's the same way I've approached filmmaking as well, which is project by project, uh, and just kind of, I keep referring to them as reps, with just like, just get more experience, try new stuff, pull tidbits from other people you observe, and then try that on your next one, and then bloop, 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 <laughs> forever and ever, it will go. Um, okay, so you are, okay, I'm trying to figure out how to wind us down here a little bit. One thing we haven't talked about, which I do want to, okay, so, essentially, production company, we haven't even mentioned the name of it yet, Yellow Rain Productions. Yes. Great. So, we'll just, we'll, yeah, make sure we say the name. Um, now, I, yeah. In terms of moving forward, it's the end of 2021. We're going to be in 2022 here very shortly. I think about the... Okay. When I think about myself, I think about the pillars that I'm building. There's the script supervisor version of me that wants to go union and get on bigger shows this way. And then there's the director, Eddie, which is the big dream pillar. Um, When I look at you, I think there's the producer, director, production company, making stuff person. And there's also the actor side because you are uh, a SAG member. We didn't talk. I haven't talked to you about how, how, when, when did that, when did you go SAG? And uh, so essentially moving forward, what's the percentage of, what's, what's, what are the goals here? Yes. Um, so I joined SAG earlier this year, actually, Congrats. in January. Um, I got signed for acting right out of graduating acting school in June in the pandemic. Signed in terms of for get, representation. getting an agent yes. and a manager? Yes. 
Lovely. And so that was for acting. And then... Any I was going to say, any advice on go how to how to go SAG and how to get representation, wh- how you did it? Yes. So there are two ways to join. There's the Taft-Hartley way, and then there's the way of do- getting three union vouchers through SAG projects. So you can do background on three SAG verified projects and get the voucher which i think now they don't do vouchers it's like you submit your pay stub and then they calculate if it's accurate or not the first thing though is in acting school they made us register you can register today even if you're not sag to claim your name which is the first thing because sag has like a thing about having people with multiple names in Mm. sag so you claim your name, you put your email, and then that way also you're in the system. So if you're doing work and you forget like, oh, I actually qualified for SAG, they send you an invitation. And then the second, so I was already in the database, but then I think I had two like background vouchers. And then I did this, um, he's all that, where, I got more SAG vouchers and in doing that it was like a featured thing and they weren't giving out they weren't counting a lot of the actors as union for that day which is how you need to be counted in order to get it to count as a Mm. union voucher but because I was doing like featured in it that's what it was labeled as they were like here's a Taft-Hartley which Mm. a Taft-Hartley is you can if you get a speaking role on a SAG project or you book like an under five or things like that, in order for them to let you be in it, they have to send SAG a letter saying this actor is the best because blah, 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 but they're not in SAG. Yeah, We're going to pay essentially for them to kind of temporarily join SAG. And so from there, when you have a Taft-Hartley, it used to be that you didn't have to pay your SAG entry fee after that because the studio or oh. was supposed to cover it, but now you do have to pay regardless. <laughs> but yeah. SAG has like payment plans as well. It's $3,000 entry fee. And then they have like the payment plan that you can do, which I think I did because, yeah, I did do that because I didn't want to jump right into SAG. I also waited because I think I got my initiation and opportunity to join in November of last year and then I was doing a non-union film which thank god that I didn't join because that film wound up changing my life Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I ended up getting more lines and a bigger part in that film which is now in post and it had a lot of a few more prominent actors on it and so it's actually going to be distributed and it was non-union yeah yeah so i was like thank god i didn't join sag because i got that opportunity afterwards and so i waited and started the payment plan after i wrapped on that movie and then once you start the payment plan they actually count you as sag you just can't do a lot of different um 
you can't do like some of the events and stuff like that, which weren't happening anyway because it was COVID. Right. So I wasn't too upset. And then January came and I joined and I was fully in and it made it easier for my reps to submit me for things. But I used to have a commercial agent and that's where things got tricky because most of the commercials, especially during COVID, are non-union because they're looking for families and real friends, real this, real that. So they're not looking for SAG actors. And then I had to leave the commercial agency. But Mm -hmm. um, finding representation itself for me came a little easier because of going to acting school because as soon as I graduated, we normally would have a showcase and you get to invite whatever agents you want. And I remember being so upset because... I had an agent from CAA who was interested in coming. And CAA is obviously a major agency and one of the best. But I remember it being a blessing because my teacher was like, um, she had signed with um, William Morris straight out of graduating. And they were the biggest at the time when she graduated. And she was like, she never got any work because they were so focused on their huge stars. She was just there and overlooked for everything. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you don't want to be a small fish in a huge pond. You want to be like a big fish in a small pond. Or small and small to start. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it was like, okay. And then my teachers were, they surprised me. My professors, they ended up recommending me from both the New York campus and the LA campus to a bunch of agencies. Ooh. And so in because I was out in LA and most people had gone home from AMDA during the pandemic, but I had an apartment out here and I was like, I'm paying rent. I'm not going to leave. Yeah, stick it out. Yeah. So I was like, I mean, something will come. And the worst come to worst, I just work on my films and shoot some cinematography and go shoot drone shots of LA and sell that during the pandemic while LA is empty. And so that's why I stuck it out because I was like, I'm making money this way. So that's one source of income and I can pay rent that way. And then my teachers and professors were all like, okay, she's out there. We have this one person who we all enjoyed working with. And even the ones who in, in New York who were like, you suck at this because of this for like, she has strong suits in other things and she will show up for things. And that's what we can promise is that she'll show up. And I was like, that's the only thing I can always guarantee is I'm not going to necessarily be the best actor in the room, but I'm like, I will be there and I will give it my all and do what people say and do what people need me to do and do give it 110% every time. So I'm like, whatever they need me to do, I'm going to do it Mm -hmm. and I'm going to show up. And that's all I can promise. I can't promise that I'm going to be able to cry on cue or necessarily, you know, give the best dramatic performance. So they all recommended me. And then I had a bunch of meetings with all these different agencies. And a lot of them I didn't click with because there were just so many. (laughs) It was so overwhelming. And I was like, they're not really talking to me like a person. They're talking to me like a client. And that was a red flag for me. So I wind up um, getting contacted by this management company. And they were like, can you come out for a meeting this week? I did my research on them. And I was like, okay. And they had seen my portfolio. And they knew where I went to school and everything. And then I went in for the meeting. And they talked to me so 
easily and it was like everything was so straightforward that yeah very human to human conversation yeah. whereas that's nice the robot type of i don't uh, understand what's happening ooh. like when you have to call a bank and it's like you want to talk to a person but they're like press two <laughs> yeah you're waving your hand in front of them and yeah. you're like hey i'm are you ta- are you it's like and they just keep going yeah so that and then they offered me the contract on the spot and the contract was so straightforward. It wasn't like stacks and stacks of paperwork that I, words and jargon that I didn't understand. I was like, I know exactly how much they get. I know what they get from, which was everything. And I was like, because it's management. And then I was like, I know how to pay them. I know I have control over my checks, which growing up, interested in oprah winfrey was something that was a big deal to me because she always was like sign your own checks keep track of your own checks if you have a person who does your taxes and stuff you still have to take care of your own checks oversee all of that because that's how money goes missing okay great so i was like yeah okay i have the ability to get my checks sent to me and then take a photo and then send it to them and send them their commission and that's that it's not them getting the check and I don't know how much I'm making or anything because some agencies were like that and I was like how am I gonna know and they were like we'll you don't need to see your contracts that's what one of the agents had told me and I was like that's a huge red flag (laughs) um so from there I signed with them and then they shopped me around for some SAG stuff even though I was non-union and I since then audition every single week for like major networks and stuff which is like it's just you're waiting for that one thing to hit, you sure, know? Sure, sure. So. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. So in terms of uh, acting, what? <laughs> I always got to like focus up on these questions. Um, what? I don't really want to ask this. This is a dumb question. I was going to say, where, do, what, in, in terms of, there is a term, I don't know, like I went to college uh, for engineering um, and uh, so I have my engineering degree. Regardless, I took some economics classes throughout there and there's this term called utility um, and there's this unit called ut- utils. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's kind of, this one thing that I kind of took away from this class was, um, there's this thing on how much utility a person gets from an experience or from a product is the amount they like the thing and how much kind of uh, it's it's utility U- utility cost. I don't I don't even know how to use the term, but the the point is that I think about when you when you're doing things in life, how much utility you get from each task that you're doing is um, I like to try to weigh that in my own world a little bit was I get utility from directing and script supervising. I enjoy that process a lot. Um, when you are, I was going to ask you to rank the, the different tasks that you do and the different hats that you wear. There's the actor hat. There's the director hat, um, producer, writer. We know you don't like the writer hat. Uh, there's the editor. Hat. Okay. Regardless, there's all the hats. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm just kind of curious. I think I asked you this on the on the day too, on when you were shadowing. But uh, balancing all those all those pursuits with um, 
you know, as a, I just didn't enjoy, I didn't, I didn't enjoy acting. So I'm, I'm curious on how much enjoyment on the factor is when you also have the other side of your brain that is in very much control of the operation, which is way different than being an, uh, an actor cast on a thing. I think okay I would rank filmmaking at the top I think after this I kept trying to convince everyone for the longest time like oh if I had to choose one I can't do that I love both but after this year I would say filmmaking is at the top for and me. And that's the combo of like the whole process then. It's yes. kind of your... Producing, directing, even writing, I would say. Well, acting above writing, but <laughs> producing, directing, all of it, I like from pre-production all the way to post. And yeah. I like working on projects all the time. And I can't really sit and not be creating is what I've learned. Mm-hmm. I, I feel you. couldn't go, which I'm thankful for because, you know, like what they say about idle hands. And so what do they say about idle hands? It's the d- devil's playland. So if you're <laughs> not doing anything, you wind up doing stuff you shouldn't Drugs. be doing. And I think, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for me, I just, this year, didn't really have time to wind down because I love it so much, but it does bring me a lot of joy. And I think um, Mira Nair is one of my favorite filmmakers, and she has a quote where she says, um, filmmaking is a disease and you have to be sick, and I'm absolutely sick. And she's like, you have to want it all the time and be someone who needs to do it, not someone who's like, my end goal is... An Oscar. Yeah, like, there's no end goal for a filmmaker. You just constantly need to be doing it. And so I think I only recently started to understand that quote this year. And it was after I wrapped uh, Rachel Gray's music video that I did because I was like, I got to create this from start to finish and I loved the whole process even though it was a tedious one and I was pitching to her team back and forth and we were having meetings back and forth and I was like I kind of like this side of filmmaking too like this businessy part surprisingly and coming up with the treatment and all this stuff and then seeing it go from a page to like this is my vision fully executed I was like that's really cool and I need to keep doing this and I was like thank god for that need because that's how I found film pretty much full-time now which only happened in October and being able to do that and find directing opportunities and producing opportunities all the time came from me being like I can't keep sitting here what can I do what can I be creating and then launching an actor's real business in my production company So I get to direct really cool scenes now all the time. And it brings me so much serotonin. (laughs) And I'm like, this is for me. And then acting, I would say, is right up there with filmmaking. But 
if I had to ever choose, I think the answer would be filmmaking because I'm someone who would rather tell the stories I want because I'm like, there's a need for these stories than be kind of living in yeah. the... Well, plus I think about the consistency Yeah. on the other side. If you're just, if, if you had to throw the other stuff away and just focus on acting, then you're just doing self-tapes and waiting and self-tape wait and then... yeah. Lots of idle hands. <laughs> yeah. And I do love acting, though. I do love self-tapes because I treat each self-tape and audition as a performance itself. So that's kind of helped me. And I'm like, this is the equivalent of me telling my parents I'd act for free in an alleyway is, is doing the self-tape. Right. And so I'm like, I'm going to give it my all. And as if this is a million-dollar budget right now right here in this room so that's helped me and I love it and it does bring me a lot of joy but it also makes me so in touch with my emotions <laughs> that I'm like sometimes I need to step away right and I'm still working on crafting that and taking class and separating myself from my characters and things like that but I love acting, and I'm, yeah. like it definitely brings me joy, and too. And I'm, I'm sure it makes it easier having, I mean, just balancing both probably helps, too, where you're not solely focused on the acting you get. Because I, and that's the hardest thing about acting is the emotional aspect of it and the, and the lack of control, where you're always, you're just stuck thinking about yourself, essentially, whereas you can focus on stories and distract from that with, other productive uh, filmmaking, lovely activities. <gasps> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I wanted to. Let's let's let's. Um. I I like this other thing you said in your. Uh, I don't know. I read a couple couple of things on you. Did some research, but uh, I kind of want to jump to. No, let's. I'm gonna have you talk about this. This is this is a nice, cool thing. This is the inspirational part of the show. <laughs> Jeez, don't fall on my chair. Anymore. All right. I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask about how you handle these three words. I'm just gonna throw them at you. It's called risks, fear, and failure. And what those words mean to you, and uh, and your approach, your approach to it all. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> risks. I fully believe in taking risks. That's all I do every single day. <laughs> um, I don't like to dwell on my thoughts too much, which. To most people, they're like, that's not a good thing at all because I don't allow myself. Sometimes I don't even think about the f the end of the plan. I'm just like, what if I did this? And then somehow a day later, I'm doing that. I didn't think about the consequences of the action, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. nothing. But I've learned to just dive into things. And I think the reason that that's helpful with filmmaking is I'm not somebody who sits in my ideas. A lot of filmmakers I meet who are doing indie filmmaking, they're like, I have this idea for this movie. 
great. Let's go shoot it. I don't have the script written. Like, but wait, it's not ready yet. Yeah. Okay. I have a script for this movie. Great. Let's go make it. I don't have locations. I don't have budget. I don't have a pitch deck. I don't have anything to offer aside from the script. Okay. <laughs> um, I have this that I want to do, but da 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 da. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm more, I have this idea for a movie. Let me write it down right now. Maybe I'll visit it and have the budget to do it later this year. The budget comes. I already had the pitch deck ready to go. Every time I write a script, I like make the pitch deck for it in case anything. So then I know how much I need for the movie and everything. And I can just dive into it. But then this past June, the reason that my film Blight got made was because I was actually on TikTok and Jonah Feingold came on TikTok and he said, someone was like, give advice to making a movie. And I was like, okay, what's he going to say? Because he just did this movie that went to Tribeca and this was pre-IFC even buying the film, I think, at this time and distributing it and it becoming a top rom-com of the year but his advice was pick a date and tell everyone you're making a movie and I was like instantly I was like I love this guy and I didn't know at the time I had been watching some of his stuff when I was younger actually when he was making content creation and he's now a mentor to me but he said pick a date tell everyone you're making a movie and then go from there and I was like he's spontaneous in his filmmaking which is how I am And not everyone likes that about me, but those that do are the ones that stick around Mm -hmm. and work well with me, and we create what we create, last minute or not, Yeah. and I kind of love creating films a little last minute sometimes, like I did my film Along Came Sunday earlier this year. We put that together in three weeks, trying to- short? Yeah, Mm -hmm. for um, HBO Max's black film- maker festival and i was on set of insecure found couldn't find an actor it was originally a boy and then the mom of one of the one of the um actors was like i have a daughter that age who acts and then it wound up she had two daughters which was better because i was like cast them for both roles and then they learned their lines like four days before we were set to shoot we had the locations we had all this stuff locked in the crew came on last minute everything Mm -hmm. and now it's like my it film (laughs) that's like my thing so it was last minute i love it no i love it so you said it was three weeks the decision was made you're it's like there's a goal in mind we want to submit to this festival was the was he was a goal we have to shoot it and edit it in in the three weeks yeah okay wow yeah um and did you did you make the deadline did it get done we missed the deadline because of editing issues (laughs) and then but but it's still it's still okay great we sent it to other festivals and then it did well at other festivals and we still have stuff happening with it but i have like a buyer interested in the film and everything and that is happening so i'm selling it and it will be my first thing that i've sold and so that was a last minute decision right which (laughs) which is awesome 
I mean, that's the, uh, yes, I can definitely again relate to that. I mean, I, I know I definitely do the same thing with, I have some fire in my belly and I need to make something. Hey, who's down? Uh, let's aim for that date. And somehow it's going to, it's like, no, I don't have a story yet. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Are you in? It's like, yeah. all right, great. And then it gets done somehow. Definitely. And you look back and you're like, how did that get done? And you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. I think that's the best way sometimes, though, because it's like everyone's just there because they love to create, not because everyone's like, oh, we've been doing this for mm-hmm. seven months now. We know exactly how it's going to go. I love films. Well, everything goes wrong on every set. But I think what I've noticed everything? is... Okay. Not everything, but <laughs> every set stuff goes wrong. Right. And I used to think it was just indie films and student films and like non-union projects. And then I got on to doing acting on other things and just seeing. It's the same thing. I was like, we're all just doing the same thing at, with different budgets. That's all it is, is this indie, this student filmmaker who's making a short film for a hundred dollars is the same as the indie filmmaker is making a non-union film for maybe two thousand dollars is the same as the indie filmmaker is making a sag film for maybe twenty thousand dollars is the same as the sag major budget film that's being made for two hundred thousand the only difference in why they are executed differently is because of the budget but every the same, yeah, the same stuff. The same stuff comes up. I had that experience early on too with, uh, I had landed, I was like a personal assistant to a director on mm-hmm. like a $7 million feature. And this, and it was a first time director, first time feature director. And uh, it was the same kind of, st- it was like, oh, we, lo- we lost an actor three days before we're shooting and you have to recast last second. And it was like all this, it's all the same drama comes up. It's like, wait, but, this is you're playing with money and you had commitments but it doesn't matter it's all yeah it's all the same you figure it out make some calls scramble talk to your producer get somebody new in either way but yeah yeah it's okay so that was that's risks mm-hmm. and then failure i think goes hand in hand with risk um in doing blight after seeing jonah's video that same day I sent out an email and I said, we're making a movie on August. (laughs) I think I said 8th. And then I remember my DP said, I can't do August 8th. And I said, scratch that. We're making a movie on August like 13th. And then I sent that out. And it was, um, I sent that out to everyone. And everyone was like, what film are what are we, what are we doing? Can we get the details? I'm like, Give me two weeks. (laughs) And so I didn't know which film I wanted to tell. And then I was so worried about which script to pick. Because I have a bunch of short films and I have a bunch of outlines too that are not necessarily scripts, but just an outline of an idea that I could easily go make a short film draft of. And I was so worried about so many different things. And then I remember being like what if people don't like this you know what if people don't like that 
and I kept when you say when you say people, you're an you're audience, f- an audience of you or of the material. Okay. Yeah, and I, because I wanted this to be whatever we were going to make, because I knew. Well, I didn't know at the time, but I wound up get having the budget to make it my biggest short film. But I wanted it to be something that was reflective of me as a filmmaker. And I was so worried about how an audience is going to perceive everything. But then I remember just thinking to myself, well, if they're going to hate this, then I may as well make the one that I really want to make. Because <laughs> if they're going to hate it, they're going to hate it regardless, you know. Um, you may as well make the film that you want, mm-hmm. then try and please other people. And, you know, if the subject is too bad, because it's a sex trafficking film, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then that's fine. And I remember I really badly, because... The film I had sent to the festivals, that was my first, like, directing film when I was in acting school, was this horrible, horrible film called The Damaged. And it placed at placed different festivals, surprisingly, but I think it's because they felt bad because they knew the story behind it. So they were like, oh, she tried her best, you know. So (laughs) they're like, she's trying to do a good thing here. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt and help her. But I hated that that's what I was known for. Like, that was what would come up when people would type in my name and, like, YouTube and stuff. And I hated... It wasn't the film itself that I hated. I hated the way it was done. And it's, like, what we were talking about, about execution. So I was, like, I need to... I need to do this on a better level. And so I decided to quickly write the follow-up of that story. I didn't want to write a new film I wanted to continue the story of the girl there in that movie mm-hmm. and so I had a fear that people were going to a be like she's made three short films on sex trafficking how many more are we going to see b be like boxing me in which ended up happening but boxing me in in the sense of you can only tell, she only tells these kinds of stories, even though I have a love, like Steven Spielberg is my favorite director. So people are like, how does that work when you make such serious topics? And I'm like, I have a love for rom-coms too, but I had that fear and I had the fear that everyone was going to be like, this subject is too taboo and take it a certain way. And I had the fear too in the script itself. The script came out to about, it was going to be about 25 minutes of film. Oh, my. Which you know is not good That's for long. shorts. That's long. <laughs> um, especially sending it to festivals. It's I wanted this to be the film that I could send to, like, the major festivals for the first time. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think anyone's going to be taking this. Yeah, I think the recommendation is normally under 20, under 15, probably. Yeah. yeah, the shorter, the better, but long enough. Yeah. where you're showcasing the best of the best and get a real story in there. But yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. So I was like, <laughs> I guess this isn't going to festivals. So lots of fear. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I remember sitting there and I decided to like just watch a bunch of different interviews on the off-camera show. And it was a bunch of my favorite directors and, you know, like, 
actors and they were talking about how they prepare for these roles and how they prep for the stuff that they jump into. And I was watching, I decided to go and watch um, Jonah Hill talking about mid-90s and his directorial debut with that. And in listening to him, I saw how many doubts he had in the beginning. And mid-90s is one of my favorite films. Mm. And I think it's such a well-executed film for especially what it is like it's literally about kids yeah skateboarding yeah. like that's it's so well done for just how simple the original plot is and i thought i was like whoa like these people have these fears too that i look up to and these major these people playing on the major levels you know and his turned out fine i should just take the risk again and then I sent it out and I was like so worried and I was worried when we were filming I was fearful when we were done filming I was fearful in post I was fearful we had to split it too into we did some in August we did some in October and then no not even October November we took like breaks in between when we shot I was nervous and fearful throughout the entire film and I think the biggest worry I ended up having was just that it was going to glamorize the subject which I wanted to stay away from because I felt like every film I had seen thus far always glamorized the subject and without intention to but just by making things so Hollywood rather than staying true to how things are mm -hmm. and for me, there was so much research that went into it, which was fearful for me to get these stories right and speaking to families of victims. And I was like, there's so much writing on this now because I've involved these families and these organizations. And I was like, I hope I can do it justice and not right. flop and all this stuff. And then we got to the most important scenes and... I remember I just felt relief because I was like, I don't know what the heck I was scared of. I'm telling a story that really matters to me and also to a lot of people. And I think it's going to resonate. And if it doesn't, if at least two people watch it and they're like, I took something away from this and it sparks a conversation in their own lives, then I did something right. And that's yeah. all I needed. So, yeah. Amazing. So you finished you finished shooting all that. I'm assuming it's, it's in post currently. Is it's in assumption? post. We end up having one scene left to shoot in January because of COVID issues. Yeah. The cool thing about the story you just told, maybe I'm trying to make this more poetic than it is, <laughs> but uh, you list a lot of fears and a lot of hurdles and a lot of... Uh, there's, but one thing you didn't talk about is there wasn't a fear. Oh, okay, you, there's fears that you mentioned, but there wasn't the fear of failing in the way of it not getting done. I don't know if that ever came up, but it sounds like, from yeah, but it sounds like it in the the way that I work too is like there's a back there's the back in the mind thing is in some way or another we're gonna find a way to finish this movie. And 
until it's done, there's a little bit of that pressure still still on. Like you said, you're mounting pressure for yourself with connecting with organizations and families and that, that ups the stakes on, on your journey. But I think that helps with, uh, I mean, if, if we're not uncomfortable, and that's kind of like the classic thing too, if, if it's just a walk in the park and we're not feeling anything while we're going through the process, I don't know if it's uh, actually something... Like we're just not challenging ourselves and it probably doesn't matter. We don't care. And uh, so doing all that, you cared a lot. And it sounded like you didn't fear that this thing wasn't going to get done. Is that is that an accurate or am I... Uh, okay. That's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely from day one of saying I picked the date, I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. I didn't know how and I didn't know where the funding was going to come from because I... I didn't have investors for this project and then finding people to invest I had to go through hoops because nobody wanted to invest in a film that dark right and the way I was doing it too it's very disturbing it's not because I didn't want to glamorize it so there are very disturbing scenes and people are like that does that's not really my brand but yeah I wish you the best of luck and I had to find help, which thankfully I did from um, Flow Film Festival, which is a great one for especially like indie filmmakers, but especially women in film. They were very helpful and helped me find locations last minute and stuff that I, even though I had picked in June, couldn't find in lockdown with the budget I was working with and finding actors and stuff. But I knew regardless I was going to do it. And I think that's exactly what you said of like, you just know it's going to get done one way or another. And I didn't have any doubt in that because I was like, end of the day, I've grown in my own abilities as a filmmaker. So if it comes down to I can't pay a bunch of crew and stuff, I can pay the actors and I can shoot it. Or I can get my um, one of the people who directed my performance in the movie because I didn't want to direct myself acting in it. Um, he had done. He was the DP on my original short, and he I mm. flew him out for this. So I was like, worst come to worst, he can pick up his camera. We've both grown as filmmakers, and we can tell it on a super super almost student yeah, level again. yeah so all the backup plans are kind of coming up to solidify the yeah yeah that's great and then the more that you go through that process too the more sure you become with uh again like i kind of you, you didn't say this specifically but as a director filmmaker type trusting thy gut is kind of the thing is you learn how to get, you learn how to trust the gut reaction and you learn how to read it and you learn how to kind of just like make the decision and not think about all the outcomes because like, all right, my gut says this, we're going to do it like this and just trust it and move forward and deal with things kind of step by step versus getting the overwhelm of, yeah, because that's where the hesitation comes in. Is like my gut says this, but what about, uh, and then you end up just, spiraling yes okay lastly <laughs> lastly so we'll, we'll 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 wrap out with this um i do know that you have a little uh, i don't know why i said little you have a web series 
in the works. Yes. It is called Season of the Girl Boss. Yep. What uh what do you want to tell us about this currently? I how it's early in the process it sounds like. I don't know. Tell us about it and then we'll we'll wrap out from here. So, I'm on TikTok as we discussed <laughs> and yeah. my TikTok is a little different from a lot of people's where I'm more sharing my journey in film. So I share like the good, the bad, and the ugly on there all the way every project I'm doing that I can share and how I prep for that all the way to like how I got to where I am Mm. thus far and how I'm going to where I want to go and where I want to get. And I do this because I think it's really interesting for people to move with you and see your journey because if they want to do it, it makes it more attainable to them. And I wanted to encourage a lot of more women, I would say, in film and also just filmmakers in general who are younger and feel it's not really possible. And I get asked all the time, like, I remember... Just in the year of me being on TikTok, it was kind of huge milestones, but they were tiny. But to me, they were huge. And sure. to my audience, they who had been with me since my first few TikToks were like, this is crazy how much you've grown and how much you're getting to do now. I remember last year, people would ask me, how do you afford your films and how do you afford your lifestyle and everything and living in L.A.? And being all bougie. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the answer was like you know i was like i'm doing doordash and i'm doing postmates and i'm watching dogs and i'm walking dogs and i when i was in new york in college i was walking dogs and here in la i'm on rover and wag and i'm doing all this stuff to make ends meet and that's how i fund my films and all this stuff and i was like in the process of applying to grants And then in January, no, in December of last year, I got a grant for a film. And then I remember posting that and people were like, congratulations. And that was my new way of funding films. And it was all happening really fast. And then by the time July came around, I wasn't doing DoorDash anymore to fund my films. And then by the time October came around, it's like I wasn't having to do DoorDash or Postmates or anything to do anything. I was doing filmmaking full time. And so I think that's really cool, sharing the journey and how you do things behind the scenes and Mm -hmm. how you go from kind of unknown to where you want to be and making and telling the stories you want to. And I think it's really interesting to see women in these spaces as well, in spaces where they're the minority. And I really enjoy connecting with other TikTokers who have similar pages, but in other industries. And I would notice there are women in law who are sharing how they got to where they are and they're making decisions on these huge cases and you just see how much hate they get in the comments for the stuff they're doing and they talk about the difficulties and I think they have really interesting stories and I would see there's this chef on TikTok her name's Miriam and she makes amazing meals and stuff 
and she um, wears a hijab and she's a chef. And I was like, that's really interesting to A, be a woman and then B, to be Muslim and C, to exist in that space. What's that like, you know, in if you went to culinary school or I have all these questions like how does that affect any how you're treated or any respect that you get, you know? And then there are people like models like Olivia Ponton and she went from being a TikToker to a Wilhelmina model who's now the face of like major makeup brands and doing all these high fashion things and she's existing in these spaces but she talks a lot about on her platform the behind the scenes of being a model and how she surprisingly struggles with her body and she gets much hate for saying that and I wanted to kind of create this space where it would be me not formally interviewing people because I feel like sometimes those get so stiff and I wanted it to be more of a hangout with different women across different industries. And a lot of them will come from TikTok and we've locked in a few people and talk about their journey and A, how social media and being on TikTok has helped them in any ways to get to where they are. B, what they did and what got them into what they wanted to do in the first place. C, what it's like existing in a space like that as a woman and then D, how do you overcome that and go about standing in their own power and everything? And I thought that was pretty cool if we were doing that, but we were doing activities that fit whatever they do. So like with Miriam cooking, um, Emily Uribe is like a comedian on TikTok. Yeah, and a little bit like a day in the life yeah. versus uh, sit down with B-roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah those conversations and you know just diving into that and having these conversations about the good the bad and the ugly not just yeah a nice transparent look at, uh, at a full life versus the happy sliver of what social media normally presents yes. people as um, so is it is it proper to assume that it's kind of like a, a series in a way of each each episode covers somebody else, or is it kind of like a through line thing of you come back to people and you I don't I mean I don't know this could be an edit thing. <laughs> it is each episode is pretty much a different person. We do have a few special episodes. Like I have an episode where I'll be highlighting Indigenous women in film mm -hmm. and what it's like existing in the smallest space in the film industry let alone controlling their own narrative in media because they don't have any control over that and I am lucky to have a wonderful friend who is a woman in film who's indigenous who works at Comedy Central in post and then also one who has her own claymation company and sitting down talking with them as well as a few other filmmakers who are a little more well-established and doing an episode with all of them and having these conversations while we actually make meals that are native and we yeah. visit different reservations. So episodes mm. like that. Yeah, no, that sounds very cool. How do people, as our last, I guess, uh, thanks for being, like, I, well, I'm just going to segue <laughs> out of that. That's a horrible transition. I'm going to say thanks for, uh, thanks for chatting um, and coming out. Um, lovely to hear about everything. Um, I was going to ask for people that want to 
be in the know, follow your journey. It sounds like there's a couple of different places they can do that. Do you want to plug the uh, stuff? Yes. <laughs> um, but thank you for having me in the first place. Um, uh, TikTok at directed by Brainy, and then my Instagram is Sabrina Lasagna. Our website is yellowrainproductions.net. And that's it. <laughs> Great. I will make sure I include links down below on the YouTube and in the podcast space. So check those out. Follow Sabrina. Make sure you leave a like, you leave a rating, you share, all that kind of stuff. I'm, have to, I'm really bad at re reminding people to do that. So do that. Um, but for now, lovely chat. Thank I, you. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bum, 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 bum.